Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast with the IB's top 250 movies of all time, and sometimes covering hot new entries in the middle of the week. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. And Andrew, I got one question for you. How you doing? Hey, I'm I'm very well, Darren. I'm I'm feeling bad because I um either earlier today or um far in the future. I killed your house. You did kill my house, Andrew. But luckily, listeners won't have to worry about that for another two months. But yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Andrew killed my entire house, which is why I've maybe been a little bit frantic here. But yes, we are talking about the latest entry on the list. Denis Villeneuve's 2021 Warner Brothers science fiction epic Frank Herbert adaptation, Timothy Chalamet vehicle and space dilf movie, Dune. And joining us for this discussion, two fantastic guests, the wonderful Jen Gannon. How are you, Jen? I'm good. I'm alive. The main thing. <laughs> like that. This, this is the standard that we've set over the past two years. It's like, I'm functionally breathing. That That's is it. all we can expect. It's all you yeah. can hope for, really, at this stage. Uh, and the fantastic Deirdre Malumby. How are you, Dee? I'm good. I'm sitting here with, like, slightly wet hair, don't care look. But, you know, good oh, yeah. besides that. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, we should we should note that yes, the the production on our side has been a nightmare. Thank you very much to our guests for kind of being uh, very obliging to us here as well. Um. All right. So let's talk about Dune. Um. The this is the second cinematic adaptation, the third screen adaptation behind obviously uh, David Lynch's 1984 adaptation, which we covered last year, and the Sci-Fi Channel's original William Hurt starring miniseries from I believe 2000. Um. What is our familiarity going into this? So like Jen. I think when we had you on talking about Swept Away, we were like, yep, yeah, you, you got to come back for Dune. You covered possibly the wettest movie we've ever covered on the list. You should cover the driest, driest. movie on the list. <laughs> yeah. What was it? Like, you were very excited about Dune going in. I was, was excited it? about Dune not because I ever cared about Dune, because <laughs> my experience of Dune is with the Sting in his pants version, the David Lynch version, that would be shown at parties in the background when people were just stoned and it was either Lost Highway or David Lynch's Dune in the background. So I never actually watched it properly. So I I didn't really care about it. But I cared when the cast list for the film came out and I was like, okay, you've got Timmy, of course. Then you've got Jason Momoa, Oscar Isaacs, Josh Brolin. I was like, there is a a selection box of hotties that he has gathered at Zendaya. (laughs) There's something for everybody and I was like I'm I'm intrigued now I want to see is anybody wearing Sting's pants nobody was but <laughs> that's a side note but I just think that's the way to assemble a cast for your kind of high art caliber sci-fi film um, and from then on in I was like strap me in I'm ready to go send me to the Spice Worlds <laughs> yeah this is this is a follow-up a sequel to our Spice World episode, exactly. we should all note. Um, we, like, everybody in this movie does take the advice to spice up their lives. Um, and I, I do actually want to come back to that cast list, because I think that's a very valid point you make about this movie and what separates this movie from either earlier attempts to adapt Dune or other big science fiction projects, some of which may involve the same director. And I think in terms of, like, its broad appeal, that's something to get at. But, Dee, what was your relationship to, to Dune? Had you seen the previous movies? Had you read the books? Or was it just something that kind of came across your radar? I ha- no, not really. Like I was aware of the books and I was aware that they have a really big um, fan following and that in terms of kind of the science fiction genre, you know, that they're they're quite kind of monumental, I suppose. Um, I yeah, I haven't seen the David Lynch one either. I haven't seen many David Lynch movies, to be honest. I don't know. I just they don't have a great appeal to me. They're like a bit too weird. Although, mind you, I did actually make myself sit down and watch Blue Velvet um, just over the last year and I actually quite enjoyed it so I should really give his stuff more of a chance 
I suppose the biggest thing for me going for Dune, as well as like the terrific cast, which um, Jen touched on there, was the fact that it's Denis Villeneuve as the director. You know, I'm a huge fan of his work. I think that he should be, I know he doesn't have maybe as many works as Christopher Nolan, but I do think that he should be, you know, kind of considered within the same, like, respect, I suppose, because I just think he's such a fantastic director. Like the stuff he's produced between Arrival Blade Runner 2049, Prisoners and Sicario. He's really an exquisite director and does something really kind of powerful with his work. So I was excited to see this on that basis. Um, how I felt about it afterwards, we'll get into. Ooh, <laughs> let's, let's be very, some very spicy takes on this podcast episode, hopefully. Um, but yeah, okay, well, you mentioned Villeneuve. It is worth just giving a bit of back context for this movie, um, because obviously Dune, as you mentioned, a seminal science fiction text. We are living in an age where we are mining IPs. Anything with brand recognition is getting revitalized and renewed. Villeneuve had read the books when he was a teenager. And again, this is something we will probably come back to. When we were talking before the call, I mentioned to Jen, whenever you read press, there are two answers that people give when they're asked about like their relationship to Dune. One answer is, uh, no, never read the books. I knew there was a film. Uh, Denny's just a remarkable talent to work with. And the other answer is, I read the book when I was 15 and I was immediately signed on. Um, and Villeneuve is one of those where he says, yeah, I read it at the age of either 13 or 14. I was reading like French science fiction comic books at the time, like Metal Horon, Howling Metal, that I got from my aunt, very similar to the, the heavy metal comics in the UK. And then kind of like he had always wanted to make Dune. And he's argued that like throughout his filmography, you can see the influence of Dune in like, for example, the recurring desert imagery that occurs like throughout his filmography. So like, I think August 32nd on Earth takes place in the Utah Flats and Sendes takes place in a fictional Middle Eastern desert. Uh, Sicario takes place on the desert in the Mexican border. Obviously, Blade Runner 2049 has this like vast desert wasteland in Las Vegas, but also even the wasteland that the characters kind of wander through when looking for street urchins. So he said that it's always been with him. And as soon as like, the opportunity was presented to make it, he kind of seized it. And it's interesting because this is a very expensive movie, $160 million budget, uh, which is absolutely massive. And Villeneuve is coming off the back of arguably one of the most spectacular financial failures of the past half decade. I really like Blade Runner 2049. I know Andrew absolutely adores Same, it. Yeah. DD mentioned that she yeah. liked it as well. I think like it's interesting that... He he failed. He made that movie. It bombed at the box office. And Warner Brothers were like, here, have another $160 million. Have another property that we have struggled to adapt and nobody has managed to bring to screen in a way that engages audiences and just take another bite of the apple, which is, is kind of interesting. Do this Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, like, if it felt like a trap. If, <laughs> if the studio were, like... Um, David Lynch you know, walks into a meeting with Warner Bros. Like, how? How could you take this property and give it to this Canadian? House Villeneuve. Yeah. You will be given Dune. Yeah. And um, Anna Sarnoff at Warner Brothers yeah. like wipes the sweat off her brow and says, don't be so sure it's a gift. Um, but yes, it does feel a little bit like that. Um, okay, so before we jump in, before we kind of talk about this, how did we all see this? Because this is a movie that is available in multiple formats simultaneously. Five different cinematic formats um, and also streaming simultaneously on HBO Max as well. Um, so, Jen, how did you see Dune? What was your reaction to it? Like, what was it? I went to the cinema because um, I think it's really important to see a film like this in the cinema. And I know how upset Villeneuve is about the fact that it is on streaming at the same time, because I just don't think you get the impact 
of something that is so visually arresting and you don't get the opportunity to be completely overwhelmed and lost in the world of it if you're seeing it on your laptop or on your tv or worse on your phone I can't even imagine that uh how frustrating that would be to spend all of that money and then to have like to make it look as beautiful and as, as breathtaking as you can and then to have it reduced to something is just it, it's it's shocking to me that and like even I think someone like Ben Stiller was saying on Twitter uh he said like I thought June was in the cinemas and I came in and like my kid was watching it in the kitchen on their laptop like and it just takes the event away from it so I saw it in the cinema and I think anybody, you should probably go and see it on the biggest screen you possibly can and with the, the best sound you possibly can because it is, um, you have to immerse yourself in it. But then I also watched it um, from a HBO screener as well. So I've seen it twice now. But uh, yeah, definitely it has to, it is a cinematic experience. And it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, let's get people back into the cinema. And I found... On the one hand, that is completely necessary to kind of, you know, because cinema is that an art form like that and, and, and it has to be treated as such. But I also I felt like, my God, the, the press and PR for this film has been unbelievable. Like I actually felt so sorry for Timothee Chalamet and Zendaya because of the amount of press oh, yeah. that they were put through that was absolutely redundant and ridiculous. And it, it feels very... The, the corporate machinations behind it, you feel very strongly for this film. It, it, it's real sell, sell, sell. Let's get it the worldwide box office. Let's put it up against, you know, the comic book films. And I think it's a tough sell. And I think they've been put through the ringer. And I hate seeing endless junkets about nothing. I, I really felt affronted at one point about like the amount of junkets that they were doing about like, you know, who's your best friend? Buzzfeed, blah, blah. And, and I, I just was if like... Call Atreides was in the Marvel Universe, which superhero would exactly. you and I'm And you're seeing this more and more because they're trying to push and push people back into the cinema and going, you have to go and see this film. And I, I felt we're at the thin edge of the wedge here. And I'm thinking, is this what it's going to be like from now on? Because if it is... I'm out. I don't want to see 20 million junkets. Like even with Succession, it was the same thing. They're pushing the cast into these endless, pointless interviews. And it actually takes away from what they're trying to actually do, promote the film itself or promote the TV show itself. So I kind of, it's overkill. There has been overkill. Um, and I would hope that the film for people stands up to that kind of, or they can, you know, put the two things beside each other and not... Yeah, not have the film get lost in the endless promotion. Is that something that kind of people are more aware of in the media? Because I feel like a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of the time, this sort of stuff just kind of completely passed me by. Like I, I listen to a lot of stuff about Succession, and um, and some of it was podcast ads, but some of it was also just kind of like organically people talking about Succession is coming out and like you know, on podcasts where they're not being paid and where it's not a kind of native advertising, but where they are talking about it. Um, but And kind of obviously like putting on Now TV or something like that. You will always get an advertising. Yeah, but they brought the whole cast over this time to the UK. London. They I had like, Kieran Culkin like was that. on Lorraine, for God's sake. Like this is stuff that does not need to happen. And I feel like... They had like, premiere, I believe, as well. Yeah. The premiere of the first episode. And stuff Which like is that, just yeah. mind-blowing to me. It's actually ridiculous to me that they would do that. Um, and that just shows that everybody's worried <laughs> about the future media. of media and the way that they're selling things. But I think with Dune, it was very obvious and and it just went on to such a degree that it became meaningless. It kind of became pointless. Um, because 
I just felt like they were pushing it too far, almost like you could see the fear. You can you can taste the fear and it shouldn't be like that. It should just be like this film is great. Let's go see it kind of thing. Not like let's have a questionnaire for all the cast to answer. That's absolutely pointless just because we're getting their faces in your face. Trend. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, and again, not to not to go too much into this. Again, the release of it simultaneously on streaming at Warner Brothers. We we talked about this on our Tenant episode. Notably, arguably one of the worst decisions in Hollywood history. Um, the decision to go day and date with releases on HBO Max it apparently cost the studio somewhere in the region of three billion dollars, even accounting for the pandemic and all the limitations that exist there. Damaged relationship with talents. You've got Nolan moving over to Universal to make his Oppenheimer biopic, for example. You you point out Villeneuve wrote an editorial in Variety. He was so angry about it. But also one of the knock-on effects of that is that it I I suspect, Jen, that like one of the reasons why this perpetual junket season is happening is because like with the Suicide Squad earlier in the year, Warner Brothers have realized the moment that you release this on HBO Max, it becomes easily piratable. And in fact, like it was famously there was a, a HD version of this that leaked online on Monday this week, I believe. Um, like fully remastered, absolutely no question marks or shady quality. You know, no point bringing a camera to a cinema anymore because this is just straight off the server. And to help avoid that risk, like Warners have rolled it out across the world. It has been out in continental Europe for over a month at this point. It has been opened in Latin America for a month. Why are and we getting it so late? We're getting it so late because... Give pirates a chance to no well no that that's exactly it's not it's to avoid it's to minimize the risk of piracy basically because the promise was the promise that AT&T made and if you were a subscriber to AT&T you would have cause to sue them if they broke it the promise was the day that this releases in American cinemas you will be able to watch it from the comfort of your home on HBO Max so the moment that happens pirating the movie becomes easy because you just download software and rip it off the server yeah. Right. So Warner Brothers response to that was to roll it out theatrically in every other possible market before that would happen. So it has been releasing overseas for a, a month and a half now. But it hasn't uh, been released here. It hasn't been released here because I, I don't know why they because with the Suicide Squad, they opened here early and then they opened the States a week later. I suspect that they were worried about American audiences feeling left out if they opened in the UK and Ireland and didn't open the States at the same time. But yeah, it's just an interesting example of like the media ecosphere, the media ecosphere in which we live. They kind of wrote themselves into a corner as well, Warner Brothers, with promising that it would be all of the 2021 movie releases because you compare them and you just kind of it would be the most immediate example that would come to you. But you compare that with Disney and what Disney have just said is actually we've changed our mind now, guys, only movie releases for the rest of the year. So Warner yeah. Brothers just completely shot themselves in the foot with that decision. They could have just been like, for the time being, it'll be simultaneous. Let's see how that goes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The big problem was that at the announcement, they actually like sent out posters with these are all the movies mm-hmm. as well. So they can't even do the cheat of saying, oh, well, we'll, we'll move it into next year. It'll be a January 2022 release. Therefore, it can go exclusively in cinemas. It's like literally yeah. a countdown now until Matrix, Matrix Resolutions. Yeah. Um, Sorry, Matrix Resurrections. Yeah. Apologies. Yeah, that's that's the or there. But D, what about yourself? How did you see? Um, I think I went to the same screening as you, Darren. This is <laughs> this kind of came about <laughs> me coming on this podcast. Um, so I've only seen Dune once. So I saw it on Monday night. It was kind of a you know preview screening, quite a busy one actually. The cinema was properly packed. It was in um, the IMAX screen in Cineworld Dublin, and yeah, it was an interesting kind of I don't know. Like when I whenever I go to these screenings, right, I kind of like passively 
observe the audience's reactions because I find those quite interesting and I don't want to get into the spoilers yet but I'll be talking about it when we get into that section of the podcast <laughs> what I interpreted as the audience reaction but I've done it with screenings in the past like for example I've gone to a few like kind of family preview screenings and I'm always kind of curious about how engaged the kids are or are they running up and down the aisles just no interest whatsoever in the movie I think that you can get a good idea of how an audience is responding to a movie with those kind of screenings and that's why I suppose you know Dublin distributors kind of organize those so um yeah it's it's interesting I'll have I'll have some things to say but uh, <laughs> yeah and I, I also actually saw Blade Runner 2049 in the same screen and yeah both of those films oh my god I don't think I could even watch Blade Runner 2049 now unless I saw it in the cinema because <laughs> both those movies are just made for the big screen and I'd absolutely agree with Jen in that like there's no point watching this on a, on like a smaller screen than a big cinema screen. There's no point. Yeah, I think in fairness, Villeneuve is being kind of like, he's been measured as in like that he doesn't want to sound like he's kind of encouraging everybody to go to the cinema at once. And he's <laughs> saying kind of like, depending on safe, where you yeah. are, if it's safe like yeah. to go to the... But he's very definite in that like his preference would be the... And I think all the cast have been as well, like Momoa's made the same point as well. Um, Rebecca Ferguson, who is great at these press junkets, has made the point there is no comparison between the two. And like, I I would agree. Yeah, obviously, if you don't feel safe going to a cinema. Momoa likes the cinema so much, he he gets two seats just for himself. (laughs) (laughs) A a seat in a buffer seat. And and when he goes with Timothée, it's fine because Timothée doesn't need a seat. Because he doesn't have a bum. Um, um, I love that this is the recurring 250 sorry. bit with Timothy Chalamet. I did tease a little while ago that, yeah, Dune is the perfect Timothy Chalamet movie for Andrew because the it's a question about whether or not he can sit on a throne. And that is a yeah. very serious question <laughs> if you have no butt. Well, um, Oscar Isaac has all the butt. So he, he doesn't yeah, inherit yeah. his father's butt. <laughs> He's a little yeah. tank. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, that that's the arc. That They don't really mention that that's Leto's arc. It's like, I didn't want, I want to be a pilot. I want to get my, was it his ethnic hips, I think is mm-hmm. how Oscar Isaac has yeah. described it. He had difficulty fitting, fitting them into an X-wing. So it's like, no, the throne actually fits much, much better. <laughs> um, so when he yeah. says he hopes that, that you know, he, that he hopes that uh, Paul gets his groove, that's, that's kind See, of exactly that's what, what they're talking about. In, in kind of like wide kind of crowd shots, you see like Oscar Isaac's um, ass. It's it's great. Yeah, uh, th- thank you. <laughs> but okay, right. So, uh, so something for everyone. I tell, that's um, what I'm saying. That's what I'm yeah. saying. And okay, to talk a little bit about like the size and spectacle of it before we jump in, because I, I think. <laughs> Of Oscar Isaac's ass. That's exactly what we're talking about. Um, I'm going to talk about something like listeners can imagine I'm talking about Oscar Isaac's ass. If that makes you uncomfortable, you can imagine I'm talking about the whole film itself. I think it applies equally to both. I think what's interesting about this thing that we are talking about is that Villeneuve like understands scale and spectacle like nobody. He understands it's very difficult to get the whole thing in frame at the same time. Even with the IMAX aspect ratio, he's very much like, I can't fit all of it on screen. And like he constantly <laughs> understands that to give the audience a sense of scale and spectacle and majesty, he has to have it break the frame. The frame is very rarely centered on like typical cinematic language is that you have like close ups on characters and faces and then you've got widescreen to orient everything. So like think of the Sergio Leone Westerns where you have like the wide shots are like these three characters are standing in this place and they're each that far from each other. One of the things I really love about Villeneuve's work on Dune is that he does do the intense character close-ups. And like D mentioned Nolan, 
Uh, Nolan, very key influence here because Nolan's arguably the director who figured out you can use IMAX to shoot character close-ups. And it's really interesting because previously IMAX had largely been used for documentaries. Liam Neeson talking about how big Everest was, for example. Mm. And Everest is like uh, half the size of Oscar Isaac's ass, apparently. <laughs> but like, <laughs> but the, the whole thing is like Nolan with, say, The Dark Knight and with Interstellar in particular figured out that if you put an IMAX camera really close to a, an actor's face, and that is a good actor, like Heath Ledger unmasking himself at the start of The Dark Knight, Jessica Chastain kind of thinking to herself as she drives in a car in Interstellar, that is really interesting. And Villeneuve does that a lot. There's a lot of really intense close-ups of like, particularly Rebecca Ferguson, particularly Oscar Isaac, particularly Timothy Chalamet. Um, and he, then he also obviously alternates with wide cuts. But those wide cuts, those wide shots are often framed in such a way that what you are seeing is so big that it doesn't actually fit even within the IMAX ratio. And like to pick an example, the worm, like the worm appears three times over the course of this movie. And each of those three times, he draws attention to how big it is by having difficulty squeezing it into like the biggest possible screen you have ever seen. And at the risk of seeming hyperbolic, like I have seen this movie more times than I really should have. Uh, but I'm wondering, like, is Dune the biggest movie I have ever seen? Like, if I were to, like, pick an adjective to describe this, it would be big. Mm. Is it the biggest movie I have ever seen? And, like, so, like, in terms of... Is is that a fair question? So, Jen, D, do we think, like, it? how is this... Whether Oscar Isaac's backside, <laughs> whether the film itself, is this the biggest thing? I think there was a lot of butt imagery in this <laughs> film. I'll get into that later. Oh, there... Uh, which there is. Uh, as I said, something for everyone. Uh, but... But <laughs> it is. Um, I so I love anything. To go back on that. <laughs> just end on that. I love anything that feels like you can get lost in it, and that's what massive sci-fi films to me are supposed to do. You're supposed to feel that majesty, and it does. It definitely does. It it definitely feels hu huge. It feels like there's parts of it that um, it's like it's like his Blade Runner as well. There are parts of it that are like a painting there are parts of it that you know are like a dream it also reminds me of this imagery in it that kind of reminds me like i talked about this before i think on this podcast like his blade runner there are parts of it that remind me of tarsum sings the cell and i know people rag on this cell a lot but imagery wise that film is absolutely gorgeous and that part in blade runner where she falls out of the plastic bag uh yeah, into the th that is just unbelievably beautiful as in like a painting like a dream surreal and there's parts of dune that are as spectacular and as breathtaking as that so if you want something scale and that sensory overload it definitely has it in spades and like it's on there's parts of it that will just remain in my head that are unforgettable i think and i think that's the kind of awe that you want when you go and see something like this the sheer magnitude of it and it definitely has that and D. Yeah, I'd agree. I have the word embiggened in my notes. So definitely <laughs> yeah. big was a word that came to my mind watching this. I mean, even like we're talking about kind of the shock composition and just the size of the world, which, you know, bear in mind that we're talking about an entire universe here, multiple planets yeah. and stuff like this. Even the size of the cast, it's so big. Everything about this <laughs> is drawing attention to how big it is. And I think, and again, we'll get into this more later. I think it's really interesting that you have such 
bigness in those kind of aspects <laughs> of the movie. And then Villeneuve, I think, does a really quite good job at then simplifying certain aspects of the movie, which I could really enjoy and appreciate because I remember going into this and I remember like kind of and it's funny because I did hear people like compare it to like World of the Lord of the Rings as I was coming out of the cinema just in terms of its world building aspect, even though obviously they're very different type of movies. You could kind of describe them both as fantasy and that's maybe one of the only things they have in common. They're both very different, but it did kind of remind me of, I remember the first time watching Lord of the Rings and it was with my cousin and he kind of explained to me all the like mythology behind these characters and their relationships and the history, which he would have gotten like, say from reading the books I hadn't. And that really added to my enjoyment of the film. I found with watching Dune in terms of characterization and plot, it was actually fairly simplified and I could really appreciate that because I didn't want to get so lost in all the bigness either. So that I think was one of the good things this movie had going for it, certainly. Yeah. And like, again, in, in terms of like size and, and scale and spectacle, like we should talk about this. This is Dune part one. This is a movie that is not even like the, the and again, the idea of like images that are so big, they cannot fit in the frame. Like the entire construction of the movie is that Dune is so big, it cannot fit in this movie. Yeah, which this filled my hour... heart with dread, to be frank. Yes. I don't think you should ever go and see a film yeah. and it has part one coming up the minute you sit down because you're just like, well, we're not going to get anything out of this then. Yeah. And that's what I hated yeah. about it. Leave it until the end to say, to be I continued. Don't tell me at the very start, because then you're like, we know nothing is going to be. This is just a scene set and film then, yeah. which annoyed me. So you quite like the Dune chapter one approach. Where like, sorry, it, it chapter one, where it was like, it was advertised as its own standalone yeah. film. And then the final title card is it chapter one. I prefer yeah. things to be self-contained because I hate the thoughts. I, I think it's about yeah. getting older as well. I hate the thoughts of being locked into a pain franchise again, because you're like, oh, another five years for this again. Like, it's just like, oh, no, I can't be bothered. Like, so just give me what I think is a self-contained film and then let me decide if I want to engage in this. Don't tell me the minute I sit down, <laughs> this is not going to be what you want it to be this is going to be just setting things up for the next time like I don't like that see I feel like I watched it maybe I was slightly thick or something but I, when part one came up I thought it just meant part one of the movie and then there'd be a part two and part three later chapter yeah, breaks exactly. yeah okay. and like I was um and and then I kind of forgot about the fact that it said part one but then at the end I got a sense with that second last scene I was like oh I think I think this movie's coming to an end, <laughs> yeah. but, it, but it's not finished yet. So yeah, I definitely agree with the whole, I was quite frustrated at this not being the only movie in this franchise. And I kind of touched on the audience reaction earlier, but basically I feel like I kind of heard a, huh? Like, like a collective, huh? As that movie ended, yeah. because people were not expecting it to not be finished by the end of it. And a bit like, this is baffled. not a third act. Yeah. yeah. I mean, especially yeah, this ends not in the be second finished act. after like two and a half hours. You're like, how is this not done yet? And how is it still so vague? Like that. How is done, not done? Sorry, done, not ah. Anyway, sorry, Andrew. It's interesting being kind of like done with franchises because I feel like film studios are going to be like, no, we'll tell you. <laughs> we'll tell you when you're bad enough. Yeah, yeah never. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll never yeah. be Dune. Yeah. Um, we, we'll always be Dune with that. But uh, Dune with that sort of thing. Apologies, I'm going to keep doing this. I apologize. I'm going to keep this. doing this. I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, this and again, this is what's what's vaguely interesting about this. So, like, th I don't consider this a spoiler because it's part of the marketing. It is the opening title card of the movie. The movie is the first sixty percent of the novel, and Villeneuve has very 
interestingly to me, I'm I'm going to put my hands up. I'm going to say I am the uh, obligatory Dune fanboy on this podcast. We are legally You're obliged to have McLaughlin. at least one. I am the Kyle McLaughlin, the guy who's calling everybody up on their mistakes, the Denny Villeneuve. Uh, Andrew is the Timothy Chalamet, who's like, I, I never really read it, but I like Kid Cootie, and if they're making Kid Cootie biopic, I'd want them to take it seriously. So yeah, I took it very seriously, and I'm like... I, Sorry, what what was the Kid Cudi thing? So like, so they were asking Timothy Chalamet about like how he felt about Dune, and his response was, and I kind of like this is the press junket thing where he's probably done twenty of these a day, and his response is, no, I, I never read Dune, but I think of something I really like. I really like the music of Kid Cudi. If they were making a biopic of Kid Cudi, and I was working on that biopic, I would want to make sure that every little detail of that was correct and correct and lined up. So that's how I approach Dune. As if I was starring in a Kid Cootie biopic. And I'm like, that's that's an answer. You, that is definitely not, an answer. By the way, you're not going to be Kid Cootie. <laughs> <laughs> <That's... laughs> well, bless but, uh, him. That was a lot of promo. I'm just in his defense yeah, and doing yeah. French dispatch promo at the, at the same, same time. time. And being Twink, Willy Wonka, gearing up to do that film and that at the same time. Twonka. Willy Twonka. Yeah. But, or Twinka. Uh, so Twinky he's got Wonka. a lot on his plate, bless him. So yeah, no, excused. I, 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 that was, I was not just dis- disparaging Mr. Chalamet there, but uh, Mr. Chalamet to his to his. I mean, friends. this is the way that you kind of interpret these things. So I respect him for that, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's down with the kids. There's some sort of Warner Brothers marketing executives like, yeah, now we got TikTok. Two markets see this movie. combined. Yeah, right, like right the there. Venn diagram lighting <laughs> up like. Yeah. But, yeah. And then you have like memes with like um, the, the predator. <laughs> I can't shake Kind of, uh, yeah, where it's like Kid Cudi fans, um, Frank Herbert Frank fans, Herbert fans and, <laughs> and like, Denny Villeneuve's too. Yeah, yeah. But okay, well, I want I want to come back. I want to come back to the ending just in a moment. But I I do. It's something Jen mentioned in her introduction, and I think it's something that's worth remarking on because I think it's something that's great about this movie, is that it feels like Villeneuve has kind of figured out how to make a science fiction epic like this. Because like obviously Blade Runner twenty forty nine didn't really land with audiences and general audiences. General prognosis for this is surprisingly good, given we are in the middle of a pandemic. It has already made $147 million worldwide. Its opening box office uh, in the US was $17 million. It's projected to make at least 40 by the time the weekend's over, which is astounding to me. The audience cinema score for this is A-, which is phenomenal for a movie that features the line, scrub your ass with sand. Um, It is, like... I am quite impressed at how well this is connected. I'm going that on Twitter. Why it's an A minor. Yeah, that, that, that's why they docked at one point. But like, the audience is not like Lyon. that's why they gave him one point more because he was saying it to Oscar Isaac. He was actually saying yeah. that to his ass at the time. Yeah, I mean, and, and like he went to the right place. Oscar Isaac's ass. It's I like mean, a whole planet a full of sand. Yeah. Like you're gonna need a lot of scrub. Like anyway, sorry. I love that this is this is the level we're at here. But no, I mean. To bring it back to Jen's opening point, though, I think one of the things that's great about this movie is that it's found a way to make it accessible to average audiences, primarily through things like casting, primarily by casting people that general audiences like and respond to, um, and by, like, finding a way to advert, like... People are complaining that the posters for Dune are very generic and very routine, and that they are literally just Zendaya list- is Jenny. Yeah, a list of a list Sorry. of names, and then faces associated with those names. And then a desert down the bottom of it. And people are like, that doesn't sell what Dune is. And it's like, no, that sells what general audiences want to see in a movie. You don't need anything else. Like, I mean, yeah. because the 
film itself is so dense anyway and so layered. How would you fit anything on the bloody poster? The poster would be like the size of a wall, like to have to fit anything in. So give like people what they want. Give them Timmy's face and Oscar Isaac's face and say, just go see this film. It's got them in it. You like them. That works. Because I mean, we talked... We talked about that with like the like the David Lynch version where they had to give people like glossaries going in to see it, like little dictionaries to guide them, like the marketing included coloring books. So you could like color in like the torturing of certain people by the Harkonnens. And it's like, make sure you stay within the lines as they do the eye gouging. Brown, uh, yeah. brown. <laughs> Mostly gray, if you can get gray in the back. But to be fair, Lynch's version is a bit more colorful, to be fair. But yeah, I think that's that's kind of worth celebrating or remarking on. But to bring it back to the, the sequel talk, like Villeneuve has said he wants to make three Dune movies. So he wants to make this one, the second half of the novel, and then he wants to make Dune Messiah, which as somebody who has read the books is fascinating because Dune Messiah is itself a second act. And I love that he's like, no, the ending of my trilogy will just be the second act. That is what it's going to be. Oh my God, um, no. What age will I be when these all come out? Bloody hell. Well, well, that's the thing is Warner Brothers have not confirmed yet. That they haven't even started filming yet for the second yeah. one. So, Well, they haven't confirmed. They haven't like, there's officially no green light. Anna, the green light. Yeah. 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 yeah, there's been a lot of winking and nodding. Which feels a lot like, because, like, remember when they, like, when Green Lantern came out in 2011 and they're like, we have an entire trilogy mapped. Like, Ryan Reynolds is going to be making these for the next 20 years. Like, Sinestro is going to be your new favorite character. Um, I all- prefer this approach, not just practically in terms of, like, you get so much egg on your face, but also <laughs> in terms of what they're saying is, or what, what Danny Villanova at least is saying is, like, let the audience tell us if they want. Um, another one. The counterpoint to that would be something like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which is what I would argue this is closest to, where, again, Peter Jackson went off and made the three of them together. Right. And, like, even if they released them separately, uh, he was like, no, we're going to make them all in one so they're all there anyway. Um, but anyway, that that's that's kind of my my thing on the... my takeaway on the whole mm-hmm. it's not really a movie, because I am terrified by the fact... Like, well, uh, Jen, Jen is, is terrified. Not, like, a, a movie and it did like that it's difficult to kind of cover what you want to cover with dune over a single movie yeah and that that, that i mean that, that, that this movie could have been could have, like, well we like, talked about it with the lynch version like the lynch version tries to cover the whole book and what happens is it is largely this movie compressed to two hours and then the 15 book. minutes of speed running through the rest of it it's like oh crap we ran out of money time and script pages got to yeah. get through it as quickly as possible that's, you, you, you could you could do like an entire movie of kind of like first third sort of exposition yeah. where it's like all of the like Benny Gesserit and like uh, Guild Navigators, they, Mentats, yeah, all that sort of stuff. Like Quizats, Heterats. And, yeah, or, well, I mean, that, that's the thing. That's what like, Q is for in this, this the coloring book. This is the thing that I like. I like about this movie because I'm a very boring person. When I went to <laughs> when I went to school. And like on Friday, you get your homework. I would be the kid who would go home on Friday evening and I would do all my homework. And then I would have the rest of the weekend to do whatever I wanted to do, which was mostly watch movies. And I really like that this movie is like, we're going to give you a solid hour of like exposition, world building, homework, establishing who these characters are, their relationship to one another and the logic of the universe. And then we're going to give you 90 it's minutes kind of, of just a roller coaster. movie does as well. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Oh, sorry, with the Lynch. Right? I, I thought it was very slow from start to finish. <laughs> Honestly, I thought it was quite indulgent 
in terms of its running length and how much time it was affording everything. You know what I mean? <laughs> so so I'd kind of I'd kind of disagree with that a bit and that um, I didn't feel like it needed to be a full two and a half hours. And I mean, it, it felt mm-hmm. that long, which I don't think is a good <laughs> sign. I mean, there were certain bits in it where I'm like, OK, there were so many visions like. And the visions were so long. It was getting a lot. And there were so many shots of Timothy Chalamet on the beach. Like, I didn't really see that as contributing to the plot. Looks, he looks fine. great. That's he looks great on a beach. <laughs> but I was so happy. Let Jen Every speak. Time to the, I was like, good. Sorry. I got it looking like he's in an expensive perfume out twirling around a coat. I'm delighted. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm what I'm not what? delighted yeah. though is the I love, I love that Jen's like more of that. Jen's yeah. like less less of the action stuff, more of the beach I just painting. thought the pacing was weird though. I think you're right. I think the pacing was off for me because I was like, okay, there's too much like Mm, it just felt like there was too much or not enough. And then at the end, you were like, oh, oh, this is what it could have been like for other parts of it. But that, like, it just felt, it, it just came in peaks and troughs, but also like you did, you felt every minute of, I think you're right. I think you did feel like, oh my God, another, this has like gone on for another hour at this stage. Like, I mean, and as much as I love spending time with Timmy, let's not get it wrong. Yeah. Let's not get it twisted. <laughs> it still was a, a, a lot. I think a lot. Yeah. I'm thinking of even like when they arrived on, when they actually arrived on Arrakis, right? And remember, you see the spaceship just coming down and down yeah. and down. <laughs> and then all of the little metal contraptions coming out and landing in the sand. Then the door opens slowly. They come out slowly. They greet one another really slowly. Like I was like, do we really need to and then like, they get on like, another time, ship. time people, let's wrap this up. That's not even them arriving at the city. No, they have they They're go like, to the landing pad and then have to yeah, fly to Aragon yeah. to get on these so long. I'm going to speak up for I love uh, that stuff. Uh, I was like, yeah, feed me more of that stuff. And it's an actual helicopter. So there's a whole load of like buttons and things that you need to... To flick and they show all the... Fl- <laughs> like, I love like I love that whenever Velneuve is like, I need something to happen quicker in real in the film than it would happen in real life. So like when they're collecting the spice harvester and they see the ship in the distance, it's like, how do I get it there quickly? It's like, oh, I'll just clip to somebody flipping buttons for a solid two seconds and then we'll cut back. <laughs> it's like, yeah, just, just show them flipping some stuff. It doesn't matter what it is. It just shows See, some action. I, I, I thought that the the perfume ad thing was astute. Is Timothy Chalamet in perfume ads? Because no, he I hasn't. Not yet. Zendaya is. He's not branded. Means... Yeah, but the thing about Zendaya is... But Zendaya is in his Zendaya. perfume ad, though. Zendaya. Yeah. yeah. The thing like, about Zendaya gotta... is I felt... Like, this is a kind of... should save it for the spoiler zone, but, like... Yeah. She's in all the promotion. This is what I felt so sorry yes. for. She's in every single bit of that promotion. They took her out like a workhorse and she is in this film for like less than five minutes. Like, I mean, yeah. Like, yeah. that's sick. Sorry. Like, yeah. that's sick. That and, poor woman, like. And and again, it's that thing that really annoys me where the thing is, the promise is the next one's going to be her movie. Mm. And I know that, I know that Jen is like, oh, I'm now tied into a franchise that's going to happen. And and my response is, I'm now tied into a franchise that might never happen. True. And that's my existential nightmare. That is, is like, true. Is that it. would be even like, it's frustrating on both sides because it's frustrating if you don't get a second one. It's terrible for her um, uh, building up to that. And it's terrible for people that want that extended universe. But then um, it's also terrible if we get it because you're like, God, I'm locked into this forever now and I'm tired already. Like... <laughs> <laughs> I gave you two hours and 35 minutes, damn it. That should be enough. Exactly. Yeah. Just make, make make her be the first movie. Like, it's it's like with, with, 
Well, I, no, no, no. I, I, I know obviously you can't do it, but it, it just reminded me of uh, Star Wars, how they say, like, okay, Harrison, you'll have the first one. <laughs> Mark Hamill, you'll have the second, second one, one. And as and long as you don't die, Carrie Fisher, you exactly. will have the third one. Which yeah, broke yeah. my heart. It broke so my weird. heart. It's tragic. Yeah. Like, yeah. Because it doesn't give her her due. No. Okay, well, I, anyway, sorry. I hope you have not jinxed uh, Zendaya. I really hope oh you have God. Oh, no, God. Yeah. No, so I'm just talking about the movie not getting made. I, I, okay, okay. Because the way that <laughs> yeah. you framed that, well, the way that you framed that was like, yeah. Um, I mean, to be honest, okay. guys, oh, I wouldn't no. be too worried about any of the cast. They've got <laughs> other stuff besides Dune going on. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it would right. be nice to see Zendaya get a big sci-fi yeah, cool, moment yeah. franchise because I think she is just so versatile and her moment is now though I really feel and that's why it's so frustrating to me to see her just so use so little in yeah. this because she does have the greatest thing about this film I think with regards to casting is that everybody has intense emotional intelligence and you don't really get that in a lot of those big broad sci-fi films or comic book films you don't get that attention to detail action wise and I think everybody he has brought these people together or cast together that all have that sensibility about them and that's why it is a joy to kind of watch them dig into something that they can make more of and I think that's why it's frustrating not to see Zendaya enough at all yeah Yeah. I would agree with that Um, before we move on I just I want to speak up in defensive as the kid who was very boring and kind of went home and did his homework I loved all the ceremony stuff I was like, they should get in the ornithopter and they should fly to another landing pad, then get out, get in another ornithopter (laughs) and then fly to the city. There should be like a middle ceremony where they do that more. Um, I was all on board for the ritual and ceremony stuff. All right, then, before we jump into the spoiler zone, three questions to get us started. So, um, D, do you think that Dune is one of the best 250 movies ever made? I personally don't think so. I mean, I, I know there's like a conversation going on in Twitter like kind of asking is this even a whole movie and I feel like yes. I don't know I don't feel like it is a whole movie that ending just left me so dissatisfied and it just felt so long there were a lot of things about this movie that I really really loved but I think that I I would have to consider it nearly flawless to be in the top 250 Um, and I, I wouldn't really consider it that so no for me as just as somebody who has been kind of critical of the like sudden ending and the fact that it's not really a movie in its minor defense, I would argue that it has the Empire Strikes Back ending. In it that if doesn't, the Empire though. Strikes... It doesn't, though. It <laughs> I doesn't. love that you're calling me on it. It doesn't have the intensity it. or the payoff <laughs> of the one of the greatest movie endings um, when you're in despair. <laughs> like, it doesn't have that. It really doesn't. No, I disagree. I tried to sneak that in under, and I appreciate you calling me out on it. I deserve to be called out on that. Um, Jen, what about yourself? Do you think this is one of the best 250 movies ever made? No, sadly. And even for the amount of screen time, I get to look at that man's face and to have those beautiful close-ups of Timothee Chalamet's face so much so that I involuntarily said oh my god out loud at one point and a man shushed me in the cinema (laughs) because of his face um even with all of that um I still think I was left without that triumphant kind of feeling that you get when you watch a really good sci-fi film or a really good fantasy film where you get that kind of urgency about it I was lacking in that for me and yeah, unfortunately. Very beautiful, though. One of the most beautiful films I think that I've seen in a very long time, but just not enough intent. Like, there wasn't enough story wise for me to make it one of my faves. No, Saws. Um, and Andrew, what about yourself? 
Um, yeah, I, I, w- I would kind of... Um, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to the second half. And kind of... Um, I, I'm, I'm not going to really kind of... Um, uh, declare, I suppose, that whether, 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 whether it kind of uh, belongs there until, until you have that, that kind of satisfaction of a second, of a second half, because, because, because I think at the at the moment it might seem kind of slow, and it probably was, but may, maybe that sort of like uh, uh, pacing will pay off once once we have like a thrilling conclusion. And I, 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 I don't feel like it's a like it's a complete movie. I think it's the right thing to to split it up, but I think it's difficult. It's difficult to kind of say that it doesn't really mean as much if it's if 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 it's if it's on its own. If Dune if Part Two never happens, or if Dune Part Two doesn't work, inferior movie. Yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah, I'd be I'd I'd be I'd be reluctant to kind of now if it, if 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 it is pulled off. Um very well then yeah you have to think of it because it's a very impressive movie Um. for myself i would probably say no uh just as that is the default answer when we get to like these new movies um i tend to like space when i kind of decide that movies are the best movie ever in the history of mankind and absolutely deserving of a place if i were making kind of space yeah not that well i mean it is a big movie but like the point is i need more space than you can fit in a frame really yeah like i feel like if you were taking a shot of it it would look like sand just you falling into what, what how much space like you need like yeah. yeah yeah you know i mean i feel like the ornithopter needs to go higher even if josh brolin is dangling me out so i can kind of just get a look at it um but what i what i would say if we were hypothetically making an argument for it uh two things i would say first of all is we can bump off one of the Star Wars for it, I would say. You can bump off one of the Lord of the Rings for it, I would say. You can make room if you kind of want... Oh. <laughs> oh. Whoa! Okay, wow! I feel um, very strongly about the Lord of the Rings movies. And I feel very strongly about Star Wars, unfortunately. So. <laughs> Not getting it. So Darren, you've just been vetoed there. Sorry to say. Give me me the weak one. You can get rid of one of the Chris Nolan movies instead. Whoa. (laughs) Now you're getting real. Yeah, that's... Darren's not batting a thousand. (laughs) Shutting the podcast down. Yeah. Like, Dee and Jen are just standing in the middle of a cavern saying, where is the Outworlder? Um, and I, I'm like, damn it! I've never, I've never killed somebody in a debate before. Um, but what, what? A, okay, fine. That is, that is the pass on that line. The, the other line. And keep in mind that I agree with you. I don't think you it belongs on the so list. So that you can say, well, if this Denny Villeneuve movie is in, then maybe another no. Nolan movie. <laughs> <laughs> and just cause a chain in effect. This in, I have a little whiteboard tennis? here with like little yeah. maps and stuff. Okay. The other argument that I would make in if like. If you put a gun to my head and said, Darren, you have to justify this being in the list, which nobody is doing, but I'm going to do anyway, um, is I would say that this is an argument for cinema as a cinema of spectacle. So like during the 1950s, when TV was emerging as an art form with its own rules, its own reach, the idea that you could buy it and you could watch it for free at home, cinema had an existential crisis, which was how do we prove to audiences that cinema is a medium that is still vital and still worth living? Uh, And the response to that was to say, okay, we're going to throw out the old four by three Academy ratio. We're going to embrace widescreen. We're going to embrace super widescreen, Panasonic widescreen. We're going to show audiences that there are visions that you can see on a cinema screen that are utterly unreplicable at home, right? 
And so you get Westerns, you get biblical epics, both of which I would argue are huge influences on this. This was shot in the same desert as Lawrence of Arabia, for example, to give a sense of scale in Jordan. And if I were gun to my head forced to make an argument that this belongs on a list like this, which it doesn't, Darren says, very gently couching, I would say, or hedging, I would say that this feels like that response to the threat of streaming. This feels like an argument for cinema, for the big screen, in an era where audiences are used to seeing spectacle comparable to modern blockbuster filmmaking streaming directly to their television for no additional cost. And I think that when very you put this... Very large television. Very large very, television with a great surround sound system yeah. and all that sort of stuff. I think that if you put this next to a movie like Shang-Chi, if you put this next to a movie like Black Widow, if you put this next to a movie like Jungle Cruise, this exists in an entirely different league and it makes an argument for the biggest screen possible. And if I were to make that argument, that would be the argument I would make. I don't think that's strong enough. So no, I do not think it belongs on the list of the 250. Um, all right then. And then second question. And then do you get shot at the end? I, I, I just got shot, Andrew. You're going to have to take <laughs> over the podcast. Um, right. uh, but uh, D, would this be on your own personal 250, your own 250 favorite movies? No. Um, I actually probably would have Blade Runner 2049 there, actually. I absolutely adore that movie. I think that it has everything in terms of um, like just the sa- scale and the cinematic quality and it just being beautiful and you being able to kind of pause it at any point and being like, I could just print this and frame this and hang it off on my wall. I think it has all those qualities, but I just found that it had a lot more appeal to me in terms of what was happening on in terms of the characters and I thought that thematically it was a really interesting exploration of what it means to be human which I think is such a core kind of exploration of the sci-fi genre in general so there was just a lot more going on I felt in that movie than in this for me but I do kind of appreciate that it seems to have really kind of hit home for a lot of Dune fans and given them what they want but because I don't come from that fandom I didn't get that connection with it so yeah. Um. No, that, that's fair. And Jen, what about yourself? That's, that's your, your faint praise there, Darren. <laughs> that was I, I know, you. I know. I, I, I did feel pandered to. I, I feel like I got an entire Dune well, movie. I appreciate yeah. that. Like, I, you, I don't need the pandering, but I appreciate but it. But I mean, in fairness, um, my, my no, colleague it's, it's Brian awful. would be the same. Like, Brian Lloyd is a big fan of Dune. And I mean, he gave the movie like uh, five stars on our site, Entertainment.ie. And I came out of it like that was not a five star movie. But, you know, he's to their own. <laughs> Yeah, and I got texts. I think I'm from on four and friends. a half at the moment. I got texts from um, friends of mine, male friends, I will say that uh, were saying like, "This is the the one I was waiting for, the adaptation I was waiting for. This is, you know, big fans, and they 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 loved it too." So, hey guys, it's your time. But <laughs> but finally, people are paying attention to the straight white yeah. guys. Finally, finally, <laughs> never happens. Um, finally, they're pandering to us. Listening to that. Uh, Listening to that story about like Friday evening, you get given like this homework to do, and then the rest of the weekend, I love your impression. You spend like one hour on on um, on on homework, and then the rest of the weekend is here. I would just like not spend one hour on homework and just never do my homework. You you know, you are too cool for Dune, Andrew. Congratulations! (laughs) Congratulations, you're cool. But I uh, beat you up and take your lunch. You money. did. Um, to be fair, I learned to just give you the lunch money first. It was easier. It streamlined the process. Um, but Jen, it would it be on your own personal two fifty? No. So no. Uh, no. 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 Uh, even, even no. No. He tried no, his no. best. Gave me Timmy. A lot of Timmy. 
gave us Oscar Isaac's foot. Uh, but arguably know. more Timmy than you've ever had in terms of in my life. Footage. Like, yeah. that, that was great for me because I hadn't seen him in the cinema for a very <laughs> long time. So it was great. But uh, no, I mean, like in fairness, like Dee was saying, I'd probably say not Blade Runner, but Prisoners would be on my list Ooh. because I think that I know even with the very silly ending that I did laugh at the first time I saw it, I burst out laughing. I still love that film for what it is and how it's done. And you can't beat Paul Dano. I mean, you can, you can beat him with an iron well, pipe. I mean, I was about to say, film, isn't the entire Jack point of the movie, you, you can beat Paul Dano, yeah. <laughs> but he is such a, like, he's such a great actor. And I just, I like the kind of story about that. I like the whole thing about like, America and its relationship with violence and its relationship with torture and all of that kind of stuff. And I do think that Villeneuve is a really interesting director and I like what he's trying to do with everything he does. I enjoy his films. Uh, But for me, this was just not, it just didn't, it doesn't have, for me, it was like more to do with the story itself and the fact that I didn't have any relationship with, it was very removed for me and that was a problem. So I, I couldn't get, I couldn't actually get myself right into it, involved in it. So that's a no from me. <laughs> right. And Andrew, what about yourself? Um, no, 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 I, 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 I wouldn't. And, and, and it, it, I, I, I guess what I said before about whether it belongs under 250 at all might, um, might, might hold as well. I'm probably closer to yourself in terms of kind of um, uh, wanting a June uh movie you very very kindly got 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 me the the um the the Frank Herbert book um for Christmas got you forced on you however you choose to frame it <laughs> no you, you mentioned on it, like it, the it, Dune yeah, episode they, that you they, you had never you read get it them free to. in prisons as well like. <laughs> it's like a bible every every hotel has a copy of Frank Herbert's Dune nobody's yeah. ever read it yeah exactly yeah, so like, like I'm, I'm, I'm maybe kind of you know more friendly to to the idea of all of this kind of um, nonsense. <laughs> it is a little bit. It is. It yeah, is. Yeah, no, yeah, no. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. like I'm, I'm well aware. Like I'm not. Yeah, yeah but it's interesting. Some... Like it's it's, it's 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 a movie about giant worms. Like it's yeah. it's you know there are limits to how much I can say it is not nonsense. To be fair. Yeah. Yeah, um, but it's it it's it's. It's it's incredible kind of world building and yeah I'm 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 definitely on board for the second one, um but I I I'm still kind of you like, might go, miss Messiah, oh hey. absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> I I I try to congratulate Darren whether they're any good or not because I figure figure like that's what he he wants and he'll continue going. <laughs> um, I don't know how to approach it. I'm I'm sorry on this one on this answer I'm gonna have to go against the grain. Uh, oh no! <laughs> but I'm gonna have to say it probably might be on my personal 250. I I love this movie. Again, I've seen it multiple times. Um, it is very much for me. Um, and you know, as a straight white guy, I'm not used cats. to being pandered to in media. Exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Who saw that, yeah, government? I I know. Um. But yeah, so no, I, I did absolutely and uh, unequivocally love this. And I get that it's not everybody else's and that's fine, but it is it is mine. And I kind of love that. All right, then. And then final question. If listeners have not seen Dune, Dee, would you recommend that they watch Dune? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think it's definitely worth um, checking out. And like we said, for the big screen, if it's your first big screen experience, I think it's going to be a very worthy one. Um, 
but I am worried about how people are going to feel like me and Jen with regards to its pacing and the actual connection. But I can't imagine someone going to this and being like, oh, yeah, cinema's not worth it. You know, <laughs> very <laughs> underwhelmed by yes. the look I, of this I'm, film. Yeah. I'm back on Quibi. Quibi is the yeah. future. Um. So, yeah, no, I, I'd say yes. Definitely worth watching right. anyway. Uh, and Jen. Yeah, completely. Obviously, um, go and look at the geometry of that man's face, which is an art form in uh, itself. Lucky you said face. I was very, I was nervous. There were two no, his there. side profile is one of, it actually feels like it's going to cut through the screen. It's 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 like it's made of glass. I always call him the marble fawn from uh, Grey Gardens when like the Hawthorne book, uh, when they're arguing about the gardener because he's young and beautiful and, he, and little Edie calls him the marble fawn. I was like, that is too much. Chalamet so if you want to go and see two hours of him in a nice coat and good belt and good boots and great hair the best hair as I said the preservation of the Chalamet curls thank god uh probably the greatest hair in cinema uh yeah well in current cinema but yeah there's (laughs) never been this is like that moment for him where you're we're moving him on from like art house films into like something big and I'm so glad that it's like something like this rather than yes. to come into the Marvel extended Marvel universe of whatever. So I'm glad that he's chosen well. So, um, yeah, like I say, definitely go and see it, get lost in it. It's absolutely beautiful. Get overwhelmed by it. There's something about the noises of those spaceships that does something to me. It's such a beautiful sound and soundtrack wise. Oh my God, who'd have thought apart from Echo and the Bunnymen that bagpipes could be so like dark <laughs> and marauding. Um, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful experience to have in the cinema. So definitely go see it. My one big complaint is that we don't find out if the bagpipe player survived. That's, <laughs> that's like the big question that I have. Sorry to ruin the pre-spoiler zone discussion, replaced, but it's not answered. They replaced pubs <laughs> yeah. with bagpipes. bagpipes in this version. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in, they, in 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 the David Lynch version, they just have these bagpipes, the battle pugs under their arms that yeah. they kind of squeeze. Patrick Stewart and... kind of runs in, and they, they, that they provide the soundtrack. That, that's not really not a lot of people know that, but yeah, the, the soundtrack yeah, is yeah. mostly Patrick Stewart <laughs> squeezing a pug. Um, Patrick Stewart squeezes the pug, and then Toto take all of the credit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they yeah. take credit in Toto, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and I, hey. I will... Hey. <laughs> and, and I will second what, what kind of um, Jen said there. It's great to see that like, this is Chalamet's big franchise opportunity. This is his big blockbuster moment. And it is like, he was, I think, on the shortlist for the current Spider-Man. I believe mm, he, was he was very much one of the final contenders for it. And I am very glad that this Tom is Holland. what he ended up doing I'm instead. so glad that it was Tom Holland and not him because I... I, he, I mm. He has to be very careful about his career and I'm just glad that it would take shape like this that could transfer the skills that he has, that kind of fragility and vulnerability that he has and yeah. and he's so good at and put that into a wider context rather than something that would play kind of more mainstream, would, into a shape. would, would skew into mainstream, a which I don't think he should do. I, I just don't think so. I mean, no. Yeah, so I am glad that he, it, it went with some with this rather than Spider-Man, right. for sure. By the way, he's definitely going to do, like, the Keanu, like Keanu did for Speed at some point, where he's going to, like, shave off. I'm okay with it. Oh, I the don't, hair, like, like the it's curls, fine. Yeah. Like, I'm okay with it. I'll, I'll be prepared for that. It's all right. When he... 
I mean, like the studio, the studio at the time were thinking, like, what about all the gens of this world? <laughs> they're gonna, they're gonna boycott this movie. I, yeah, this is again not to, not to derail the conversation. He says, as we are still on this side of the spoiler <laughs> zone. But one one of the things I find interesting about like modern franchising is that it's like studios have finally realized that women like going to see movies. Yay! Um, and like, <laughs> I I know it only took like this. The art form is what 120 years old at this point. But like, I like the things like say the Batman, which is the new um, like Robert Pattinson movie. Mm. That is very clearly aimed at the idea that like women who liked Twilight will love seeing Robert Pattinson as emo mascara wearing like Batman. Nirvana listening Nir- Batman. Yeah, yeah, no, like like that's like because you, you see a lot of boys who are like finally Robert Pattinson for boys, and you're like you idiots, <laughs> like you like you, you, you really don't get who this is. Yeah, you will see a Batman movie anyway, like. You know, no, they can put George Clooney in there and you will go and see it. This is for like that breakout audience. And I do love that. Yeah, that this is very much like, yeah, we got Oscar Isaac. We got Jason Momoa. We got Javier Bardem. We got Timothy Chalamet. We got Josh Brolin. If yep. you're into a little bit of the problematic stuff. Well, um, my mom loves his mom. So my mom Aww. loves his dad. Sorry. But like, we also love Barbara Streisand too, which is the stepmother. Um, love like the Brolin. Thing is problematic but there is an audience there for him for sure yeah <laughs> have i missed something about brolin i would argue that zendaya is there for the girls as well we love zendaya oh my god yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um so do you want do we, do we... No, this we'll, is we'll like, take the we'll talk take the brolin stuff off episode, mike right? yeah andrew's yeah. like why why is this person problematic andrew um if listeners have not already would you recommend that they watch dune yeah i would it it it, it is a spectacle and um, and I'd recommend that you watch it in a cinema. Um, yeah. And I, I will forth that recommendation. All right, then, with that in mind, then we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. So, Jen, hmm. what is Dune about for you? Oh, God, you're going to ask me the worst one. <laughs> <laughs> the one who has no connection to this film in whatsoever in an emotional sense. I mean, is it for me, apart from being about like showcasing Timmy as a breakthrough for the future, which I'm kind of worried about because I'm worried about Wonka. Uh, whose idea was that? I'm not happy about that. Um, but uh, this is the kind of direction. Have you read the script? For, for Wonka? <laughs> Wasn't this the, the prequel script that was on the blacklist? Oh, I don't no. know if it's related to this. Oh, if you're worried now, oh no! You, 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 have, you have you read this script? I've read the blacklist script. It's it's something. But anyway, sorry. Get time to read. He was reading like it during his fourth screening of Dune. Yeah, yeah. Double job he got his homework done. He can read a few scripts, you know. Yeah, I, yeah it's that's like, why I, I spend an hour on Friday night uh, reading scripts I, so I can spend I, the rest of the weekend watching movies. Yeah, it's like homework. what is your homework? Yeah. When writing books and reading scripts <laughs> is what you do after your homework. <laughs> oh my Thanks, God. Andrew. But so, sorry, so Jen, to bring it back, what what is Dune about for you? Uh, a man called Duncan Idaho. <laughs> there's a man my- called Paul who's like the Messiah, and there's a man called Duncan Idaho who's his little friend, his little big friend. I mean. <laughs> How come they get the most normal names out of everyone? And then, well, Lady Jessica as well. She's quite normal name. But like, anyway, this film is insane. I had no idea what was going on in it for so long. And I loved the way that Dean was like, oh, they simplified it. And I was like, they simplified it. <laughs> I was like, what? I mean, I do like the fact that, I mean, the thing about it is, 
like I was saying, it was very hard for me to kind of get into it because you don't have any downtime between the world building to actually get to know the characters on an individual level. Like the, it lacks that emotional impact because it's going from bit to bit to bit to help you to get to know it. And I think that was a drawback so for charisma. me because I hate like spoiler, 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 but I hate, I hated the fact oh, that when people now. died in this film, I didn't care. And when somebody yeah. dies in like a Star Wars or whatever, when they do the big, no, you're like, oh my God. Like, you know, when planet, like worlds are destroyed and you see like places burn into the ground, like in Star Wars, I'm, I'm emotionally devastated. And I guess like that's from growing up with it as well. But I also think this is part of Villeneuve kind of saying, it's not about the individual. It's about the, yeah. as a whole, the world as a whole and talking about how, you know, when you come in and, and try and take over land and, and how that happens on a, on a whole basis and rather like look at it on a macro level as destroying the world. So it's a very film of the now about what you're doing to the world, what you're doing to the environment, et cetera. Like, but because of that and because it's so widescreen and wide scale, you're not getting that emotional gut punch and impact. Um, so for me, it's really just about like, <laughs> Charlotte Ramplin is my favorite person in this entire film. And the fact when Charlotte Ramplin went like, goodbye, young human, I hope you live, is like literally the best line in this film that I'm going to say to, to everyone. Like, it's always appropriate, um, unless you don't is. hope they live. Um, it really is. And like, I mean, just for her to turn up like, the worst nun you ever had in school and it's like Timmy going to the Christian brothers for like less than 10 minutes that's exactly what that scene is yeah. Um. so yeah for me it's all about that because that was my favorite scene in the, in the entire film I the Gomja Bor scene I could watch yeah. that over and over again because it is like I read an interview of Villeneuve just saying like he wanted it to be like a living nightmare and it, it is like a living nightmare and if anybody has been in the presence of a nun in school they will know that exact fear I didn't need to put my hand in the box girl like I know I, what this it, it is, is like. It, it is a sequel to Seven. It's yeah, what's in the box? What's in the box? Like that was the scene that apparently convinced Phil Neuve that he could make a cinematic adaptation. Because when he read the book, he's like, "I would love to see that done on screen." Mm. Uh, I, well, that's I, a relatively I, I think... simple scene compared to the other ones he did. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I do. I kind of love that. Like that's what took Phil Neuve thirty years to crack. Like when he was when he was fourteen, he's like, "I could do that scene. That scene's nailable. It's the rest of the book I have to figure out." I think the she and Phil. Sorry. The... I, I I know like the kind of like we're we're doing we're um kind of judging the movie on its own merits. But You're gonna I, say you prefer the David Lynch version? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. With 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 Ian Phillips from from kind of I Claudius and like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and that sort of thing, um that she's like tremendous and so terrifying, in it, and so severe kind of and and the the the. The, you, Your issue you, is that um, that Rampling brought too much warmth. <laughs> yeah, because that's what she's known for. <laughs> Just barrel of laughs. Maybe, maybe, maybe like a little bit more than than uh, than Phillips did, and it did that that um, and there's there I I felt like there there's there there was too much kind of maybe strength and resoluteness like straight away. From, but that's what nuns uh, are like. No, no, Paul, no but from from Paul. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that, that, I, yeah, that. but I like no because I think he does a lot of acting with his eyes, yes, which mm. are stunning. Um, yes. Side yeah, point, yeah. but like when you <laughs> see him, I don't think he was bad. I, arrive, I, I, yeah, um, on Arcus 
you can see they, they, they shoot this look like then it just zooms in on his eyes and, he, and in that one look you get all the fear and confusion in him and annoyance at the fact that all of this pressure is on his shoulders like so I mean like the thing about it is it is a white savior narrative and you can't yeah. escape that it is like about the one the messiah the whatever but I think it's nice that what Villeneuve is trying to do is kind of go and you're you're not you're kind of ambiguous about whether or not you, you support these characters, you know? And I think that's why the, on one hand, I didn't like the emotional removal, but on the other hand, I understand it because I think he's trying to say, well, these people are, you know, they're coming in and taking over this country, like uh, this yeah. planet or whatever. So you, you shouldn't really be on their side. And I think that's a good take sure. to have, but it, it kind of, that's, it's a drawback as well. Well, cause they're what, all, okay. they're all colonialists. Yeah, exactly. Best and like fascist at mm. first. What like that? That is that is the thing for me. If I were like, this is like what I love about this movie is that like I love the novel Dune, and I think the novel Dune, you know, arguably deconstructs the the kind of white savior narrative in that it's about how terrible it would be if somebody actually did try to do this stuff that like Rudyard Kipling and the British Empire fantasize about, which is coming in, installing religion in the local population and harnessing them as an army, how that is a nightmare and not a dream and how anybody who sees themselves as a messiah is really a very naughty boy. Um, and that like the chosen one narrative, which is the narrative of, like Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, all that sort of stuff is a fascist nightmare waiting to happen. And it's absolutely bad for everybody involved. I think what's interesting about Phil News adaptation in particular is that there are obviously, as Jen pointed out, certain aspects of it that are inseparable from like the white savior narrative in that it's always going to be the story of a white guy who goes to a desert and the native population pick him up as a savior and he leads them and kind of teaches them the way and they harness that to take control. Now, I would argue it deconstructs that by, as Jen points out, pointing out that none of these people are nice and the consequences of this are absolutely horrifying. There's the moment in the tent where Paul has the vision of the future. And he's like, yeah, no, I see billions of people dead by my hand under my flag because that's where this goes. That's where colonialism always goes. But I think that Villeneuve makes a very makes a number of very important choices in the movie. Um, while you're entirely right that Zendaya isn't in the movie nearly enough, I think it's telling that this is the first adaptation of Dune that does not open with Princess Cerulean narrating. Traditionally, these adaptations and the novel open with a white princess explaining to the audience what Dune is and how it works. Instead, this movie opens with a native of Arrakis. Uh, and in fact, the first face you see on screen is Jamis, mm. who is the native that Paul kills in order to join the tribe and implicitly destroys and disturbs his own future. But like you have that conversation that very explicitly frames this as a post-colonial narrative, which is we're wondering who our next oppressor is going to be. The first shot you see of a Harkonnen isn't a face, but it's a whip and a belt. But also, just to say, there is an intense concentration on the fact of, like you're saying, the indigenous people, because Zendaya, there's there's no mistaking that Zendaya, they made her look in that one close up at the start, that like the Afghan girl from the front of National Geographic like that really right. famous photo. So already you, you you relate to that straight away because you go, I recognize that, I know what that's from, I know what that's about, I know that cover. So they really are trying to lay that on tick straight away that it's like, this is a different perspective yeah. now. And and to bring in what Dee mentioned, which is this idea of like Blade Runner 2049 being about what it means to be human. 
Like, these narratives about what it means to be human are often about people who are classified as subhuman, proving their humanity. So on Star Trek, it's the android Data. He has to prove that he's human. He's more human than the crew around him, for example. In Blade Runner 2049, it's this synthetic human K has to prove that he's human. What I think Dune and is... the hologram. Yeah, the holograms as well in Star Trek. But the idea is that, yeah, you have these these people whose inhumanity is ex- is accepted as a matter of course, and they have to prove and fight and earn the right to be considered human or individuals, uh, which are, you know, very uncomfortable narratives because they recall the classic, again, in this context, the idea of indigenous populations having to be fight to be seen as humans, um, slaves having to fight to be recognized more as than people, a fraction of a more person. than a fraction of a person. Yeah. And I think what is interesting about Dune is that while it is very explicit that there is racism within the Imperium, you have things like uh, Gurney Halleck saying that Duncan Idaho has gone native. You have things like uh, Harkonnen saying that, you know, kill them all. You have things like the book saying the Fremen are dangerous and unreliable. What's interesting is that they, the book, that so the film seems to argue that the question isn't whether or not these people are human, these subclasses of people. So like the Mentats with the tattoos on their lips, the Sardukar with the tattoos across their eyes, the Doctor with the tattoo in the middle of his face, the branding. The question isn't whether or not those are really people, because they are. Um, The question is whether or not the people who oppress are human. The question is whether or not, like, the big question is, are you human, Paul? Are you a human being or are you an animal? And you have that play throughout, like the Harkonnens are described as they're not animals, they're, sorry, they're not human beings, they're brutal. Um, and I find that interesting that it kind of flips the colonial narrative on its head by saying, maybe the people who you are oppressing aren't the people whose humanity you should be questioning. It's the people who are doing the oppression itself. And there's a lot of uh, animal imagery there as well. I mean, obviously you have like the bull's head and the fixation of the bull that killed Leto's father. The way in which that's used to like, the, you know, Villeneuve cuts to it repeatedly during the like fall of House Atreides. The bull's head, which is kind of watching as like, a, you know, as uh, Leto is murdered by the Harkonnens. Like Gurney Halleck's observation that the Harkonnens are, you know, they're not human, they're brutal. The fact that Raban is known as Beast Raban. The beetle crawling in the dirt by Duncan's death. The little mouse that Paul sees as he kind of emerges and when he kind of hides himself from the hunter-seeker. Like, I mean, even the fact that the technology, the ornithopters look like dragonflies and the hunter-seekers look like insects. There's this intersection of humanity and bestiality in the film that it feels very overt and very kind of explicit. And I think it kind of fits with this idea that these wealthy people, these powerful people have to constantly prove their humanity and assert their humanity within these vast inhuman systems. Like, I mean, we joke there that like the movie doesn't contain enough ritual. I love the stuff (laughs) focusing on the rules, the herald of the change, all that sort of stuff, because it's all very ritualized. But it shows that like these hyper advanced people these these imperial forces these colonial forces these people who consider themselves superior to the mentats the sardukar um the Benny Gesserit, they kind of or the, the like the suck doctors for example they all see themselves as superior but they are just as trapped you know when when the reverend mother talks about how an animal caught in a trap will gnaw off its own leg to escape you know, she's talking about Leto Atreides himself. His fate is sealed the moment that the Herald of the Change arrives and declares that he will take control of Arrakis. He is mm. not a human being. He is an animal caught in a trap. 
And I mean, the, the, the whole suggestion is the idea that, you know, you go out into the, des- into the desert and you find yourself as a human. The Fremen, the free men, are those who exist outside the confines of the Imperium and those rules and those structures that exist to govern behavior and trap people like the Atreides. Yeah, you like. I think that the movie is playing with this idea of what it means to be human, which is a classic science fiction trope, like RoboCop, like RoboCop, obligatory <laughs> RoboCop, <laughs> ref. RoboCop ref. But I feel like it's flipping it on its head because instead of asking, "Is this, is this group that has traditionally been marginalized and othered, and in a world where society where people are marginalized and othered and branded," instead asks, "Well, surely the question we should be asking is, are the people doing that branding?" like people that we would call human do they have inherent humanity and i think that's maybe the most interesting thing about the movie or the most confrontational thing about the movie perhaps but do you think if if i may challenge that perspective do you not think that possibly you see that those themes and that narrative more so than we would because you've read the whole book and you kind of know what's coming as opposed to I feel like even though I would see everything that you were talking about there with regards to that kind of exploration of colonization and kind of flipping narratives on their head and stuff. But I just felt like it felt incomplete in this movie. I felt like it was touching on these ideas, but not really coming to any conclusions, which is what hopefully we'll get in part two. And on that basis, I felt it kind of worked against itself that way. You know what I mean? Because it just left that dissatisfaction or something. I think, and again, this is one of the things where I at once admire and also find deeply cynical the decision to split the movie where they do. The movie splits the point where Paul goes off and joins the Fremen and he becomes one of them. That is the point at which the narrative really gets into the thorny, like, as Jen pointed out, like, the white savior stuff is there from the outset. The Kwisat Haderach, uh, the voice from the outworld, all that stuff is seeded in this movie. But it doesn't really come to the fore because Paul doesn't really join the Fremen until the final shot of the movie. So the movie does a very clever, calculated thing of basically taking all of the baggage of, is this a white savior narrative? And pushing most of it into a sequel that either A, will never happen and therefore can never be controversial and will never generate a, like a Twitter like backlash or reprisal or th- countless think pieces. Or B, will happen, but will happen with an audience that has already bought in and invested in it. And so is probably less likely to be critical and kind of engage with it. So I think like when we talk about splitting the book and splitting its themes, I think I think the human stuff is still there. I think the white savior stuff, which is thorny and uncomfortable, and as a white man in his 30s, I don't think I can speak authoritatively on. You want kids, you want white kids to watch a movie and think, yeah, I could be a savior. I could be the (laughs) savior. I could invade a country. Yeah, exactly. I could, yeah. You want these empowerment narratives. I could be a cult leader. I I do find it interesting that, like, to bring it back to Jen's point, like, again, I watched this for the first time a couple of weeks ago when the U.S. was withdrawing from Afghanistan. And obviously this was like filmed long before that happened. But like the imagery was kind of inescapable. But and what have, she like, says yeah. as well, when she's like, you know, it's who who is going to be our next who, master. Next, like our that, oppressors. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Like and then because I had that close up of her looking so like that National Geographic mm-hmm. photo, I was just like, that has to that's basically yeah. laying out these scenes set in there. But what, what way, what narrative this is going to take then? Um, what way is going to lay out the film itself like but even things like the burning kind of like palace the the Mm. fall of the atreides it again it all feels very much like arrakis is the graveyard of empires to borrow a metaphor applied to the like the real life afghanistan Mm. like the idea that it's this place that is harsh and unforgiving 
and colonizers go there and face a reckoning of some sort with their own uh, past, which I again I found very evocative and very powerful, like the burning palm trees. Um, the, the shots of like the soldiers being executed and mm. stuff like that the like fires taking place in the night I found all that it like and again like Villeneuve and, and I think like you know Jen mentioned like prisoners and stuff like that Villeneuve is arguably one of the true post 9-11 war and terror filmmakers this famously premiered at Telerud on the 11th of, of September like 21 20 years to the day after 9-11 mm. and I think like Villeneuve's filmography, you look it's at things like rude, the the X-ray. Uh, <laughs> it's it's not tell a nice for a reason, yeah, um, but like but like things like you know the fact that he did Prisoners, the fact he did Sicario, um, the fact that arguably like, you know, I could say Enemy would probably fall in there as well in Send Days. Yeah. Like they're all arguably like post nine eleven war and terror mm. stuff. Like is there? Am I reading too much into? No, that? because no. I I honestly I was thinking the same thing, especially with the execution scene. Um, I was thinking like there, there's definite parallels there. And from, as I said, knowing his past work, that is something that he likes to delve into that idea and the idea of American imperialism um, and the kind of, but also I think there's parts of it that you don't generally get to see in other broad sci-fi films where death is actually meaningful in it because of that scene at the end where it is like, you know, Paul has never killed a man. And like that, the emotional toll that that actually takes on a person that you don't normally see that in those in these kind of films, because it's just like kill the baddies or whatever and blah, blah, blah. But this has a resonance for him that like to, to enter into this. Um, and I think well, he has to become a colonizer. He has to yeah, engage exactly. in colonial he has violence. To become yeah. brutal and unfeeling and to continue or like it can't it has. But it, like just the fact that it centers on at the end to kind of center on death being meaningful and to murder someone is meaningful is uh, you know a really good thing to hone in on that doesn't generally happen in these type of films i think and i think that's important um uh which i did think was a you know a real enough kind of emphasis on, on on this that kind of minute of the madness of war like the minutia yeah, I mean, that even the Leto scene, like even the way in which the camera spends time on Oscar Isaac, kind of paralyzed, naked, vulnerable, sweating. Mm. And like, while, I, you know, and while, you know, I'm sure we can joke about like various <laughs> things that serve various audiences. Like I found that vulnerability incredibly like uncomfortable. It was like something from Sicario. Yeah. Where you like have this naked form. That, that's Sicario. exactly what it is. Yeah. Mm. And like that, that really kind of unsettled me and made me uncomfortable in a way that I found very interesting. And as you point out, rare for a PG-13 yeah. blockbuster like this, which is is remarkable, uh, and I think very much kind of to its credit. And to the to the um, kind of post nine eleven stuff, you you have kind of Baron Harkonnen. It's this kind of oil baron, yeah, literally it's... bathing in oil. Yeah, I, I love by the way, like the suits that they made uh, Sarsgaard, which are like eight, 80 pounds or whatever. It's very gracious of them because it, it it that's not like um kind of digitally kind of. No, that's like seven or eight hours for yeah. Peter skateboard himself. Well, Villeneuve said, which I thought was funny, that he did, I liked this quote that he didn't want him to look like a decadent baby. So that's why <laughs> they had to make the suit. That's why they wanted to make the suit. They said he wanted it to kind of look like a rhino more than anything. Like so, yeah. My, my- my favorite detail is that scene in the bath mm. when they were filming it. They ran into problems because the suit was boyish. They discovered when they were shooting it that they couldn't put him in the bath. They had to actually puncture it so the liquid got in. 
And apparently, like, it was very difficult. on to something. <laughs> Underneath, on the bottom. Yeah. Oh, that scene was so gross. Like, the ooey gooey stuff he's in. I felt yeah. really, oh, I felt really grossed out yeah. watching that scene. It's just another nice little nod to Apocalypse Now all yes. the time. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, they all have to do it. <laughs> he has the sweaty scene as well, as well, yeah. when he's kind of wiping his head, which is like Colonel Kurtz yeah. as well, to make that connection between, like, the colonial subtext, Vietnam, Afghan, all that sort of stuff. kind of fade. We don't. Presumably they're saving that for the sequel. Yeah. Hot pitch. I want Lucas Hedges as Fade. I want uh, Saoirse Ronan as Aurelian. That's my pitch. I don't want Saoirse to go near pain in franchise. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be the don't take my Oscar franchise. baby. Do not do well, it okay. to me. Do, do you want to know the alternative, Jen? I'm sure this will well, make you feel much better. Apparently Aurelian was in early drafts of the script, but they had to write her out when they couldn't get Emma Roberts. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. Because <laughs> yeah. oh, she's exceedingly hard to get. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that is that is the thing. But I suspect like like the Emperor, they're keeping him for the sequel so they can cast a big enough name uh, mm. for the kind of fade role, I think, as well. Um, in terms of like... And, and he will have the shorts. <laughs> will he have so the Sting shorts? who do you want to see in the Sting shorts in the sequel? Well, the Sting shorts does sound like, like, like slang from Dune. It's like, we have the Hunter oh, Seeker, yeah, the we have the Gomjabor, and we have the Sting shorts. Um, but... <laughs> and can I just say, more parasols, because the parasol, Stephen McKinley Henderson is one of my fave peoples, and to just see him reunited with Timmy and give Timmy that big hug during it because he's so good in Ladybird was just, I just loved it. And I loved that bloody parasol. And I was like, why isn't he in this more? He should be in it all the time. He's great. Yeah. Do you, do you know what the deal is with that parasol? And again, this is one of the things that I think like I really like about Villeneuve as a filmmaker, even making these like billion dollar, or, you know, $160 million movies. The parasol was never planned to be in the movie, but they were like shooting. They're like, so they were doing makeup on, on Henderson and his skin is very light mm. and he was going to crisp out in the desert. So the, like the makeup team had a little parasol for him to have as they were like doing it. And Villeneuve saw that and was like, how would you feel about just wandering around like that in the next scene we're shooting? And he's like, sure, I'll do it. That's fantastic. Amazing. I, Amazing. I love that. Like, even on this scale of production, there's still that ability to improvise. Yeah. He got he got out of like a little grasshopper helicopter. He's like, hey. Belloub's like, hey, we should use that. Should can you, can you that. fly that? Um, <laughs> yeah. He touches his ear and he's like, oh, okay, mom, I'll see you later. And he's like, can we use that in the movie? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I want to say to bring like to a point that we mentioned earlier, the emotionality of the movie and the coldness of the movie. And again, this is maybe a 250 cliche where Darren is a movie robot that generates opinions and doesn't have emotional responses to things. I found this a surprisingly emotional movie. I found this a deeply moving movie in places, in large part because it's about simmering emotion. It's my favorite sort of emotion. The emotion that is like remains of the day level emotion, which is right. we're burying all of it beneath the surface. And this this sea of emotion on which we sit will break the world. Because it's very much like it's a movie about like systems and structures and rules and like all these things that exist and all these things that guide people. But it's ultimately about how human emotions will break all of those things. So you have the doctor whose oath is to like first do no harm, but because his wife is is there and, you know, again, from the books, maybe not the most elegant plot point ever, the fridging of an off-screen wife, but the idea that he loves her so much that he breaks his oath and that destroys literally the universe. The thing like the, the discussion they have about Paul, where it's like, you were supposed to produce a female heir. Mm. That was what you were supposed to do for the grand plan. And she's like, no, my husband, who I love, really wanted a son. 
So I broke that and I made a son. And now, as a result, you have a universe that is going to collapse because these characters kind of love one another. But can I also say Charlotte Ramplin has another great line there because she said all that potential wasted in a male. And who doesn't feel like that? 90% (laughs) of the time. Thank you. Again, again, so much of Charlotte Rampling's dialogue in this movie is universally applicable. Like, (laughs) goodbye, young human. I hope you live. So much potential wasted in a male. Every time. Yeah. Yeah. But... But like the idea that, yeah, that there is this kind of like simmering emotion underneath it all. And like, that's what breaks the universe because people actually do love one another and they can't be controlled by these grand schemes or these grand plans. I Yeah, I don't know if you get if I don't know if you get to see it enough in um, and maybe I missed it, but I don't think you get to see it enough with Paul Altredis where, where um, the reaction Kind of the bit where he's in the tent is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. The bit where you made me a freak. I, like, that's that's an, like a beating heart, a raw wound of a movie, I, I would argue. And like the same thing with like Leto and uh, to, Jessica. To, to the extent that he's always kind of like sort of um, uh, like a little bit brooding. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah he's a mopey kind of... teenager. Yeah, that's yeah. essentially what he is. You know what he he's like? He's basically um, Harry Potter circa like the fifth movie when he's like, oh, I'm just so sick of pain. <laughs> Like, I'm sick of being the hero. I'm too young for pain. Like, why can't, you know, an adult step up and save the world? Maybe that's like he he is the reluctant hero. And that's kind of a character type we've seen over and over. But yeah, I was definitely getting Moody Harry Potter in terms of his character. As a teenager, like, as again, like Villeneuve, like Kyle MacLachlan, I read this as a 15 year old moody teenager with my fop of moppy hair. Moody teenager. Um, (laughs) Which is bad for me. Homework, please. (laughs) I love that Andrew's like, sorry, Andrew's like scoffing. It's like, Darren was never moody. Do you um, have not had a rebellious face? <laughs> it's true, anytime now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It'll hit me at about 40. Yeah. But like, my, like my, the, one of the things that I loved about this as opposed to like Star Wars or as opposed to like Lord of the Rings was like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings are like, you, young teenage guy, you are the fate, like the fate of the universe rests on your shoulders. You are the most important person in the world. It doesn't matter that you're from the Shire. It doesn't matter that you're from Tatooine. Like the universe bends towards you. You have a duty and function to fulfill. You have a place in this world. You will save everybody who ever lived. And isn't that fantastic? And don't you feel powerful for that? And what I loved reading Dune as a moody teenager was like, by the way, if the world ever ends up in a situation where you are its last chance to be saved, everybody is screwed. We're screwed. We are all screwed. But also, because you... Uh, you can see the parallel because I just think it's funny for me when I was watching it, like that for like Timothée Chalamet to be seen as a great white hope is so believable because he is now, this is resting on his shoulders, this massive film. Movie. Yeah. And he is the great white hope to pull a, a mix of audiences into the cinema. So I was just like, the irony is not lost on me, girl. Like, um, but I, I do think that that's, that's a huge deal for him as well in this, in, in, in the mix of all this. It, it is a lot of like, well, you've shown that you have the potential to have a lot of fans. And like that scene where they land and they're walking yes. out and all the people are there and they're like, well, you know, don't get big headed about it. They do that all the time. The emperor tells them to do that. Like, it's it's not just about you. I couldn't help but think about him coming to premieres and stuff and people just losing their minds, screaming at him like he is like the, the next messiah. Like, and I think that's a huge deal for him now because they're actually going, well, we'll put it up to you now. Where are the receipts? Show me the receipts, Timmy. You're getting all this mania, but can this film rest on your shoulders? Like, 
as you point out, like that's the entire subtext of the PR stuff where himself Ooh. and Zendaya are doing absolutely everything imaginable, everything. answering every question, no matter how many times they've done it before, talking about how they feel about Marvel movies and post credit scenes and all that sort Ooh. of stuff there as well. Like, I mean, I, and I think that's a meta text that you see with a lot of blockbusters like this. Like we were talking about Gladiator uh, recently. And like Gladiator has the same thing with Russell Crowe, where Maximus doesn't want to be a gladiator. Russell Crowe does not want to be a blockbuster leading man. And arguably the reason why that movie works is because Maximus resents his audience in the same way that Russell Crowe resents the studio system trying to turn him into a star. Mm. And I think that maybe one of the reasons why Chalamet works so well here is because unlike Tom Holland, where Tom Holland seems like this big ball of enthusiastic energy that will do absolutely anything you ask him to as long as you tell him that it makes somebody else happy. <laughs> Chalamet actually seems like um, he kind of like he's like do I want to do this is this what I want my future to be mm. and can I make the choice like the vision that he has where he's imagining this future where he's making Dune 3 and it's a nightmare as, as Jen said like Timothy Chalamet feels the same way about Dune 3 that Jen does where it's like I see legions and fires and burning and you've made me a freak it's like I, I agent, don't this want that for my job I just I want to make Wes Anderson thing. movies <laughs> Exactly. And like to come from like an art house background and to be so acclaimed for what he can do in, in cinema in that way and, and be acclaimed as such a great young actor. I think it's a big decision for him to make to get locked into something like this. And I, I don't think you should take it mildly. And I, I, I mean, I'm glad it's not like Jake Gyllenhaal just kowtow into Marvel. Like that's depressing enough because it's literally like Jake Gyllenhaal went Pain. You guys never gave me my Oscar. I'm going to go do Marvel, whatever, you know, and, and fair enough, Jake, but it's an absolute waste of your talent and I hate it. I hate seeing it. I hate anything to do with it. But um, at least he's not doing that. But at the same time, it is worrying that the only way you can earn any kind of career these days is to lock yourself into a franchise. Well, I mean, again, this is the we mentioned the Batman and Pattinson and the way in which he's kind of being used and kind which of is a crazy that. decision from on my part, like thinking about Pattinson doing that after something as amazing as the lighthouse to want to do to get back involved in a franchise when he hated every second of twilight or appeared that he did to want to go back and do something like that to me is nuts but, but I think I, I think to like this yeah, is where but oh, money oh yeah I know but like for his own <laughs> career from going from working with Cronenberg and being so intensely about starting his post twilight career moving in that direction to then go Oh well, Pain. this I'll just go back and do a Batman. It's grand. It's just disappointing, like because he, it's not as if he's making no money. Put it that way. It's not as if he's doing off, off, yeah. off, off Broadway in someone's bathroom, like. No, but like, like I feel like he's going to then kind of like decide that, you know, after Twilight, kind of people said that like it, it's, it's like he's trying to have a smaller and smaller career. Like yeah. after after, uh, after each movie, I'd say he 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 could probably just do that again. Well, that that's that's what I suspect is the angle here. Like I I don't even think it's as cynical as money, although everyone does like money. Um, I think it it's that like he's he's putting a check in the bank. People and probably want to play Batman as well. That that is, I mean, one suspects that some people do want to play Batman. Yes, I'm not writing that. A Joker. Like um, I I can imagine why like the the like well, why, he, why Jared Leto Phoenix, yeah and uh, and Jared Leto really oh, wants yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's an excuse to be a horrible human being but they bring it back to to Pattinson or Pattinson I think the argument there and maybe Chalamet as well if we are talking about like the doing or the necessity of doing Pat these Man. is that it it allows the it allows the actor to put 
like a check in the bank with a studio and with an audience. So like one of the things that I do admire about Pattinson and Stewart as actors is that they took the huge fan base that they built up from doing Twilight and then spent it on indie filmmakers. They went to directors who would not get financing otherwise and said, what do you want to make with me? I'll make anything. I'll put myself at your disposal. And yes, there is the self-serving aspect of I want to be seen as an artist, but there's also like the cinema serving aspect of, well, if I do this, it gets made. Like we, we, with Adam Sandler. Have Without Adam Sandler. Good time. He probably wouldn't have a chance. Without good time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but like, but like the idea is that eventually that dwindles over time. You know, like you reach a point where you are so far from Twilight that it's like maybe Pattinson needs another franchise to bump him up. So now it's like now he's going to spend the cash. And the, even the, like, that, the I think he'll do on his terms. Yeah, to an extent. Well, I mean, I would argue, yeah, like like, like Chalamet like doing this. It's it's yeah. like him doing Batman is a good choice because it's an auteur driven project that isn't going to be a cookie cutter blockbuster, no matter how it turns out. Yeah. Um, from the same cinematographer, Greg Frazier, as well, we should point out. And I think Chalamet maybe is doing the same sort of thing where Chalamet has been doing all these indie A24 projects. Doing? I hope oh, so. Do, thank, thank you. Um, doing? <laughs> do, doing all this. But uh, like maybe he is spending, maybe he's going to use the, the prestige that he gets from this to... To do Wonka. <laughs> <laughs> well maybe he's making two deposits okay. maybe like maybe he wasn't sure that dune was going to pay off and it's like i just need to get this in the bank um, listen he's gonna sing and dance in the top hat. I'm, I'm involved it's like, fine has, has, has that i feel like has that cash sorry, yet for for, for can, I, can i change my mind so? <laughs> yeah. sorry d I, sorry i was gonna say i feel like we've talked a lot about timothy chalamet and there are other people in the cast guys <laughs> Um, <laughs> and Jen has literally ducked out of the podcast. <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, 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 no. I mean, he is he is great in it, but uh, no, I was going to say. Um, Come watch Chalamet. Two two performances I would love to sing yeah. the praises of here. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson, I think, yeah. is really really extraordinary. I did find her performance really emotional. And uh, to bring it back to Chalamet for a moment, I thought that it was really interesting having a mother-son narrative because I think that this is really still to this day unusual in cinema. We see a lot of uh, mother-daughter, we see a lot of father-son, even like father-daughter, you know, those kind of narratives, but not mother-son that often. And I thought that it was really kind of done in a very kind of tender, touching way. I thought that they, you know, bounced off each other really well, those two actors in that respect. There was like, you know, that bit of conflict you'd expect but also like a very much nurturing on her part and like this kind of you know um protectiveness from his part which i thought that were they worked really effectively and i think that maybe another part where the ending of dune kind of makes sense is that now that zendaya is in the picture they'll be uh, <laughs> i've got a feeling the mom might get a little push to the side in the coming uh <laughs> weeks of paul's new uh chapter of his life and then another actor who i'd love to give a shout out to because um I feel like Timothy is to Jen as Jason Momoa is to me. I just, Duncan Idaho, my gosh. I mean, we're not going to yeah. dunk on Duncan here. <laughs> Oh you my can God. have your I'm own so private idea. America runs on I love, I love a big exactly. action man. I'm not going to lie. So yeah, I thought, I thought he was great in this. And I mean, in fairness, like I think he's a good actor, and he definitely redeemed himself off. Um, I don't know if you guys saw the Netflix movie Sweet Girl. It was not good, and I, I really feel like he needed a, a good performance and like a, a worthy, you know, movie like this to kind of make up for that fact. That was a 
dreadful, dreadful. Yeah, movie. one I, of the I, worst plot twists I've seen in a very long. Time. I feel like Momoa is going to make a lot of kind of bad movies, but there's not there's no reason why he can't be in a good movie doing good stuff. <laughs> he could you know? be like he could be he could have like an alterno, the Rock career. Do you know what I mean? Like as in not like a mainstream. You know, the Rock is the Rock, but like he could be like the little alternative rock if you want the <laughs> like, stone <laughs> yeah d as as somebody who loves momoa do you know the story about him getting the role in this movie oh go on it's the most momoa story ever it's mo momoa in fact one might say so momoa was apparently like was he, snowboarding. Was he jason this role what was he jason <laughs> sorry but he was he was snowboarding in the alps um as one does and he gets yeah. a phone call from his agent his agent's like Denny Villeneuve would like to talk to you about a new movie he's casting. And uh, and he's like, okay, tell him I'll be on Zoom in five. I just got to snowboard down this mountain and take this call. And he literally apparently snowboards down to his hotel room and takes the call, which I kind of love. I love the idea of him wandering into a Zoom call, carrying a snowboard. Um, but that Little is... bits of snow in his beard <laughs> yeah. just brushing it off. Yeah. <laughs> my man. I do love that he greets him, my boy. Like... Like as much as this is a very serious and po-faced movie, and it absolutely is, I love that like Momoa just brings life to it. Where like he, does, he immediately yeah. shows up, he's like, "Let me do the Aquaman thing, my boy." Mm. Um, and like I, I do think to bring it back to Ferguson, um, and to bring it back to Zendaya, weird thing I noticed, which is probably playing into the whole Greek tragedy of it, the weird supposition of Cheney and uh, Jessica. Like so, for example, there are several points at which like during Paul's dreams. Cheney will say Paul and then you'll cut to Jessica saying Paul waking him up and like the sequence where he's getting changed in the desert and she's kind of looking at her son's like naked body the half naked body it's like wow this is this is going there's a lot of stuff here to unpack maybe if we want to Uh, so I do think to to get to Dee's point about Cheney maybe pushing Jessica out of the narrative um, I think there is some interesting subtext to unpack there about boys and their mothers um, I also liked the the Greek tragedy. Unpacked. What? <laughs> you think it's sufficiently unpacked? Now? <laughs> Does it come pre-unpacked? We'll just say like, and of course, like, um, <laughs> of course, like, he definitely is like thirsty for his mom, and and we'll just like casually just throw that out and then move on. Um, um no, the the um, I like I like that Rebecca Ferguson was doing her her doctor sleep thing as well with the kind of she's so good in that movie yeah yeah but it's 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 kind of like kill him and um (laughs) you know where she she's using using her witching voice um and it's uh, and so much of the movie is again those imax close-ups of like i think shalabay's face is great in imax uh with no offense meant to jen i think ferguson's face is also really good in imax she's very good at emoting like, there are several sequences that are largely just her reaction shots to things. Like, there's a really great moment early on, as somebody who appreciates visual puns, where 10 minutes into the movie, like, Leto seals his fate. He literally seals with the with the seal. With the he's like, yeah, he seals his fate. Um, but, like, the moment where that happens and he's like, is it done? And the Herald's like, it is done. And you get this reaction shot of both Paul and Jessica. And it's like, they know exactly what this means, even if Leto takes a while to come around to it i do i think oscar isaac is also really good as leto i think dave uh bautista is yeah. unbelievable like Ooh, uh, i that's... i really think and like for like somebody who is not 
and like known as the an actor in that way I just thought they used him really well and like that kind of heft like actual largeness that he does have <laughs> like it just really was so good as in it was one of those kind of like I, I loved when you're kind of a, terrified almost like that I just loved those scenes um I thought were great with him and I, I think yeah he, he does what he does well in that kind of Jason Momoa way like where he's on screen you're I, like oh this is the I, bit yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. I'd, I'd, I think there's real kind of intelligence. I I think Darren listens as well, but there's a blank check with Griffin and David. Hi. They're doing, um, yeah. <laughs> they're doing Day Live. They, they, sorry, they're, they're doing John Carpenter mm. movies. And they were talking about Day they, they Live and Roddy Piper. And they were wondering, yeah. like, kind of... Wrestlers this, uh, going how, wrestlers Yeah, going how, like how does Jim. he kind yeah. of do as, as a wrestler, as an actor? Is he one of the best? of wrestlers and i think they, they, were, they were making a good argument for like maybe dave batista i, I think the guy. Like, he probably can... hasn't been uh tested enough but what he has done i think he's done very well i think i i think i've talked to this point i like batista a lot as an actor because he actually seems to be interested in acting um, yeah. which is always a yeah, plus yeah. with these sorts of things but like he talked about how for this despite the fact he did like blade runner 2049 and i think he's phenomenal in blade runner 2049 mm. oh, that sure remember yeah. that featured him he was yeah. brilliant in yeah and i think that like he did that but he said i wanted to audition i insisted on auditioning for this role um and i love that like he's the he's the evil jason momoa mm. like the, the film it. is structured like... the film is structured so that like duncan idaho and um like uh raban are contrasted with yeah. one another and i love that it's like yeah uh, jason momoa is the like professional like you know this this big muscly guy you bring in if you want a good time Batista's the one you bring in if you want to be terrified. Want to be murdered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You get you get more kind of pathos and depth out of a um out of a, a, a Raban than you did in say the Lynch mm. version, for example. Yeah, yeah. But out out And he only out, gets two scenes. Out of Batista generally. You get yeah. so little from him, but you 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 just but you remember like there's him. a well yeah. inside that character. Um, yeah. That you're gonna get a lot out of it, it as um as well as um uh You'll you'll also see fade <laughs> <laughs> at some point. Sting shots. Yeah. Um, all right then. Uh, anything else you want to single out with regards to this movie? Anything Just that, that it's haven't... not funny at all, and yeah, I think. Yeah, I agree. But I think it's it's deliberately done because Marvel and uh, that whole universe is so quippy and so uh, you know you have like ironic like hey guys blah blah ratatata kind of dialogue and then right. star wars is very like that as well it's it's known for how quippy it is so i like the way he's kind of like look i'm going to dispense with all of that and it is going to be the only thing is that does make it even more if you're not in the world and you're not interested yes. in it you're not going to get anything extra out of it there's not going to be the only really funny line ever was with jason momoa and Javier bardem with the you know the gift of your body's moisture when he spits that to me was like i, yeah. I did actually laugh at that 100 and then when he says to him that like i mean timothy chalamet actually. not putting on any muscle like or whatever yeah. like they were the two <laughs> funny bits in it and jason momoa gets the two best lines so um but it isn't funny at all was, so if you're looking was... for that kind of breezy Quippy saturday night kind of thrill that kind of comic booky thing it doesn't have that at all i think i think darren mentioned as well when we were talking about it a little bit which is against the rules but we <laughs> we may have been talking about some other villanov movie and i was saying how um, that movie, in spite of being quite dark, maybe we're talking about it in the future, had some like laugh out loud lines, and that this movie was was fairly humorless. I think you pointed out the Gurney line where he's like, "Smile, Gurney." It's like, "I am smiling." And I literally I, like, thought his name was Bernie smiling. for a second. At the time. I was <laughs> yeah. like, "Does he 
say Bernie? And I was like, well, your man's called Paul and he's called Duncan, so it might be Bernie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But like, and and another thing, like, I, I actually do quite like that the movie takes itself relatively seriously. I also like, um, I think Sharon Duncan Brewster is, is really mm. good as well as Lake Kynes. Um, and I think, again, I think Villeneuve uses size really well in the movie because it's, as we mentioned, everything is big. Even insides are big. Like there's the moment where Leto steps outside his bedroom and it's like he's wandered into an aircraft hangar. Like the, the corridors are bigger than the rooms in which they're inhabiting. And I really like that because it kind of gives a sense of how small the characters are. Like, because one of the things that I think about how Villeneuve uses like filming and framing here is that like instead of using widescreens to make things clear, he often makes them obscure. So like that sequence where uh, Paul and Jessica are talking in the fog after um, Charlotte Rampling has kind of wandered off and had her little fit where it's like, we measure our plans in hundreds of years. Um, like, which is a line that is less applicable than so much potential wasted in a mail or <laughs> goodbye, young human, I hope that you live, but I'm sure you can work it in somewhere. I will. <laughs> yeah. But you have that conversation with Paul and Jessica in the fog and you have these intense close-ups on the two of them. And then whenever it cuts back to a wide shot, they're kind of fogged and obscured. Mm. So instead of like making it clear, and the same thing happens with the Baron, where like when Raban goes to visit him, the Baron is like having his steam bath um, and he's obscured as well. And things like so when Leia Kynes is introduced, she's in silhouette. So you can't really see her. And then I love that, you know, that's because these are characters who cannot see one another. Again, fitting the themes of the movies. They're all within bigger plans and schemes and everything in Dune is so large, including like the plots and machinations that the characters get almost swallowed by them. Like the sequence where Paul first, like the third scene with the worm. So the first scene is like the worm appears in the desert and swallows the spice miner. Second one, it swallows um, the, assassin, the, the assassins and kinds. And third one, it pops up and you see it, but the frame, he has to cut away and cut back because it's too big when you put it in the frame with Paul. And I love that it's a movie that is about how big these systems are. Like, again, like colonialism, like imperialism, like capitalism, all this sort of stuff. It's bigger than the people who who inhabit it. I kind of, I adored that, that okay. kind of aspect of the film. Can I just say I hated the sandworms because I hate inconsistencies and plot holes in a movie. And they made no sense whatsoever <laughs> with regards to when they could hear or sense something or not. Like you'd have people running, they didn't hear. And then like tiptoeing and they'd hear. And then as well, so they eat large machinery and people. Like how did their digestion how does that energy conversion work? That makes no sense. I was really frustrated by this. It bugged you, did it? These worms? It bugged me, yeah. yes. They have... Yeah, I, 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 do you know, I'd say they they take... Um, yeah, they... Sorry, Darren can it tell that I'm going to talk about poo. Um, okay. No, uh, I, I, I was thinking about if you're eaten by a sandworm... You maybe have a good chance of being able to hold on to one of those silly. But for for um I love the idea of the worm I'd, flossing. It's like I'd, I got sorry, I got an Andrew in here. It's just gonna I'd imagine I'd imagine when the the big uh harvester is inside there that it's getting kind of like covered in any in acid and that any kind of spice and nutrients kind of and, and then and then it 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 has like an equivalently sized anus. 
<laughs> it's, it, it, it's all that, that it, that it I, I have to say Andrew like the, the, yeah, yeah. the design of the creature is that very means, much like the, the front of the body has would had have a, to be the size of the harvester like I mean Oscar <laughs> Isaac is no longer the biggest butt on screen that's true and there's many butts in this film as in like stuff that looks like butt plugs there's like spaceships that look like butt plugs there's spaceships that look like dildos there's spaceships that look like just anuses I, there's a lot of anal imagery in this film, and the biggest thing about that is, is the, the sandworm, the pisto resistance, the arsta resistance. Um, Designed by Vel so himself. Strange. Like, like, there's a wonderful interview on, I think it's Gizimodo, where, like, they're interviewing the VFX artist. And, like, it's really great because you can tell the VFX artist is really uncomfortable because he's like, you know, he's like, you could just say, yeah, you could just say what you think it looks like. We don't have to dance around this. And it's like, so why does it look like that? And he's like, well, Denny Villeneuve, Denny gave us some drawings. And that is why it looks the way that it does. Wow. Um, and then we'll keep on, we'll keep with this motif for the whole film. Yeah. yeah. Um, they, well, they, 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 it's like when they say that Harkonnen left some bad equipment. <laughs> it's like, it's like they, they only left the harvesters that had already been pooed at. <laughs> um, all right, then. Um, and in terms of, of any other stuff that we haven't talked about already, anything kind of jumping out at people that we want to discuss with regards to Dune? Or are we done um, with Dune? Sorry. Darren, you mentioned there. I, I just want to give one quick shout out because like one of the things and we've talked about it a lot is just the visuals of this movie are spectacular. So I think that in terms of like the production design, the like Rebecca Fergus, Ferguson's costumes. Oh, my gosh. Amazing. But I mean, the cinematography of this is spectacular. Yeah. So, yeah, I looked up a bit about Greg Fraser, who you mentioned already, Darren, and the fact that he's doing the Batman as well. But I loved how when I was looking through his credits, he's done Mary Magdalene and Line, which are both Bar uh, Garth Davis movies. And then he's also done Rogue One and three episodes of The Mandalorian. And I just love the fact that all those credits either involve a lot of sand <laughs> or a set in space so it's just like the perfect marriage so like naturally we we gotta get this Amazing. guy to be the dop make, for make our sand space movie as well yeah um, i do perfect. do love okay two things i do love the like the question of how you sum up like dune how you convince people to go see it i think you could argue dune is the story of a teenage boy having wet dreams about a dry world um, I also like the observation. I wish I could credit it to the person who said it, but it is basically a timeless story about how men cannot share control of a planet literally made of cocaine. <laughs> um, all right, then. So I think that about wraps it up then, unless there's anything else we're talk about. So Jen, is there anything else kind of jumping out at you with regards to doing we haven't talked about? Uh, no, just like the usual like sex and death thing where like they're saying the little death that brings obliteration that's what fear is and I was like mm, that's also what sex is Timmy's mom so yeah there's all that in it there's layers of that so there's, I like put your hand in the box babes what's a full of this is well this is the Star Wars thing where like a, not to stereotype um, he says after we've stereotyped a lot but like again these sorts of movies aimed at like teenage men often like image or visualized in the minds of teenage men particularly teenage men who are maybe not particularly um socially active perhaps and and, and that sort of stuff so it's interesting how you could argue that some of that simmers through with as you point out put your hand in the box fear is the mind killer the little death that brings life the giant anus that's mm -hmm. kind of staring at you and going <laughs> to devour you all. like and like star wars is full of that so star wars is full of things like when was it the 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 sarlacc pit where it, it's this weird uh, vagina don't have to worry about your fluids either yeah oh yeah yeah no it's very obsessed with fluids fluids and the like, yeah. fluids coming out of your body and going back into your body and preserving yeah. your fluids yeah so, like we, we like we love succession on this podcast I, can't, I kept thinking of Tom's discussion of like a closed circuit when it comes yeah. to bodily fluid 
um, very much kind of in that in that mindset. Swallowing your own load. (laughs) (laughs) That's what June's about. (laughs) (laughs) At its core. Like, and and, and again, I love how ridiculously, absurdly melodramatic it is. Like the moment where Paul is like, I got recycled water from the tent. Sweat and tears. Tears. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm like, that is such an angsty 15-year-old boy line. But also Roman Roy, not Roman, uh, Logan Roy says in the first episode of the new season of Succession that we're just running on, you know, sweat and adrenaline I think or spitting adrenaline and I was like it's pretty much the same thing (laughs) (laughs) well I mean they are both stories about like extremely wealthy classes of people who are turning their planets into hell holes so I think Dune is basically succession (laughs) is the argument I would make Um, and the only other thing again I would note is that like a small moment of vindication for me as a fan of the book myself and Andrew watching it yesterday there's a moment late in the movie where the Sardaukar like attack the uh, terraforming plant and there's a moment where like a little Sadakar soldier appears over a ledge and then they kind of teleport down slowly. And a 40 year old man behind me, who I am fairly sure had not heard the word Sadakar up until two hours previously, leaned to his friend and said, the Sardaukar. Um, and I was like, damn, is Dune going mainstream? Has Dune about to have a cultural moment? Maybe where- it's one of your people there. It could yeah. have been. Yeah, but no. But the way he said it, it was because he clearly recognized them from earlier in the movie where they right. pointed them out. So it's like, oh my god, the bad guys are here. But it's not like it's like I like I have emotionally invested in the idea that these weird tattooed men who drink bloody water are like a serious threat. They're now like, yeah, no, that's my worst nightmare is being hunted by the Sardaukar during the during the desert. Andrew, anything from you? No, you no, not a thing. Uh... All right then. All right, then. So let's wrap this up. So before we go, we like to do is we ask our guests to recommend something, something they're enjoying at the moment, something related to the movie, something unrelated to the movie, just something that brings you joy. And this is going out relatively live. So feel free to give a recommendation for anything at the moment. So, Jen, what would you recommend for this? Well, apart from Succession, because if you're not watching Succession, whatever, look, don't speak to me. <laughs> or do speak to me and I'll tell you to watch it. But um Something that I've been watching, and we could say it's, it's also about American imperialism and sex and death, is impeachment, American crime story impeachment. Um, with That's on BBC Two at the moment every Tuesday at nine. And it's just started with uh, Beanie Feldstein as Monica Lewinsky and controversially Sarah Paulson as Linda Tripp in a fat suit and a fake nose and... Also, Clive, Clive, Owen, Clive, Owen, Clive Owen's face looks like a McDonald's patty with a Twinkie stuck to it for her nose. But when you get past that, the, that kind of the costume design of it or whatever it, it's actually a good enough story about how this power uh well the corruption of power obviously but like from the female perspective that's what's interesting because it's about what happened to Monica Lewinsky um from her, her perspective but also from Linda Tripp's perspective about being manipulated by the media and what happens to women when they're on this side of history someone like Paula Jones where you're spat out the other side through the tabloid press and vilified by the wider world and it's a really interesting subject I think and it's it's always you know vital and to have these stories uh, about what happens to women when they get involved with powerful men or the way that society views women and like just the fact that Monica Lewinsky was so so young that you forget how young she was when she got involved with Clinton and the way that uh, the media and the world at large just turned on her. Um, And I think it's from Linda Tripp's point of view. So it's almost like this is the woman that society doesn't see. This is the invisible woman. This is the woman that's, you know, not attractive and maybe past her prime or whatever that means that nobody thinks about that. She ends up becoming the maelstrom in the middle of this maelstrom and pushing 
the younger, more naive Monica Lewinsky, yeah. yeah, ahead of her, like, um, and I, I just, I, all of that is, is so, so interesting, yeah, so it's really good, and Beanie Feldstein is amazing in it as Monica Lewinsky, oh, it's stunning, yeah. And Dee, what would you recommend for this? What are you enjoying at the moment? Um, I saw this movie that's not due to come out in UK and Ireland, I think, till the new year. And I think it's actually going to Amazon in the States, which is a shame because I actually think that it's a great it's another like movie that I think really deserves to be seen on the big screen. It's just absolutely beautiful cinematography. It's The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, which is based on the uh, real life artist. It stars Benedict Cumberbatch and Claire Foy. And I just I absolutely loved it. Um, I am a big cat person, so maybe that was part of (laughs) its appeal. I do love cats. Um, I know that I left the cinema and a lot of people loved it like me and then some people just did not get it. So maybe it will end up kind of dividing people that way. But I just thought it was beautiful. But you thought it was perfect? Perfect. I like that. Um, But I thought it was gorgeous. And I suppose because like he was a painter and an artist, they kind of reflect that in the cinematography and it's really cleverly done. And then I was trying to think of something that's like related to Dune for a recommendation. And the only movie that kind of came to me would be Starship Troopers because it's also like kind of touches on this idea of colonization and it's war and it's space and it's epic. Um, But there's kind of a clever, you know, social commentary going on in that as well. Obviously, a lot more humor in that (laughs) than in Dune. But it's a really it's a really good film. If you haven't seen it, that's worth checking out and then just generally the works of Denis Villeneuve if you haven't watched them he's a spectacular filmmaker all right and Andrew what would you recommend what are you enjoying at the moment um I'll I'll recommend a kind of a Marxist 80s anti-capitalist satire that isn't Robocop Um, (laughs) sharp swerve there yeah uh they live um and it's 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 um it's great it's very kind of um uh, visually uh, memorable, it's, particularly it's, for a low budget. I think it was something oh, like yeah. million dollars, right? Yeah, and it, it, it's it, it, like a lot of Carpenter movies. Like it, it doesn't get given a lot of money generally, um, well, because when he does, he makes the thing. <laughs> yeah, but the, like the, 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 <laughs> no, the, the thing is fantastic, thing but is it's not what it, but it wasn't received very well. <laughs> now it is, yeah. um, but it, like even the seemingly kind of like stupid uh, bits, I think in they live are actually um quite profound um because of kind of what they're saying um and i i, I just enjoyed it quite a bit in terms of denny villeneuve stuff i guess like sicario um is incredible i think about it all the time um the scene in the border crossing um i blade runner is fantastic and we we, we spoke about the the, the kind of humanity of a character like of of a um um the way the way a replicant can get us to think about our own humanity but i also thought that anna de arnas in that does a very good job yeah as joy of kind of um uh making a case for her own humanity and for 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 um and it 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 felt like I, I I thought she played it very well, and I thought it felt very profound, and that that it, and that it was a woman trying trying to be taken seriously as an actual person, um through through the prism of a hologram, trying to trying to be an actual girlfriend. Well, I mean, yeah, one could argue like uh, there's a fair you amount. You could of argue against it, but I I I I had a very I I had kind of a sympathetic reading of it where 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 I thought it it was it was 
fairly clever. But I, I, I accept that there are different ways. I mean, like, again, like, the, it's, it's Blade Runner 2049 is arguably about a bunch of men trying to control the means of reproduction. It's very much yeah. about asserting control over women's bodies. And there are valid discussions about how the movie treats its female characters and the extent to which it just uses them as, you know, arguably props for that theme or whether there is depth to it. I think that's that varies from person I to person. I thought it did. But, yeah. I, like, I, I understand that, there, there, that there's kind of counterpoints. And it, I'd also recommend David Lynch's Doom. Because, like, like I, I genuinely like it. It is very weird. Um, <laughs> and it's the kind of, it's the runt of the litter for, like, David Lynch movies. And it's also kind of like a punchline in on its own terms. Like even if people aren't aware of David Lynch, um, the Sting shorts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I, I, <laughs> I think it's great. I, I, I love how, how weird it is. And um, yeah, what if Charlotte Rampling like took Timothy Chalamet into the room and said, "You are facing the Sting shorts." That's it. These, <laughs> these yeah. will, End of film. Yeah, these will determine whether or not live. you're a human. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> if you could not pull off the sting shorts you would be too Maybe. dangerous to rule um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would have to yeah. be carried out of the cinema immediately <laughs> many, many many have not succeeded against the sting shorts like, <laughs> they tried and failed they tried and died um, alright in terms of recommendations for myself very quickly because it's coming up to Halloween I've been binge watching a bunch of like Halloween franchises I mentioned a couple of them last week I'll mention a couple of them this, this weekend as well but one that I didn't mention is the Saw franchise which is a very weird franchise it is both torture porn horror and also weird soap opera to the point where like the sixth movie is a battle in law between Jigsaw's ex-wife and his like male student over who has the rights to use Jigsaw's name and traps it is a fascinating film series uh, i think the first one is a genuine masterpiece i think the rest are various degrees of not great i think the third one is arguably the most i have seen a movie hate itself and its audience i have like <laughs> the third saw movie is one of the most resentful pieces of cinema i have ever seen in that it's a movie about how terrible you are for watching a saw movie which I quite admire. And the sixth Saw movie, which is the one, the first one released during the Obama administration, is Saw argues for Obamacare. Like the, <laughs> the, the, the entire premise of the sixth Saw movie is that if health insurance existed in the States, Saw would not be a thing. John, like Jigsaw would be like, no, I, I got my, my, my cancer treated. I'm fine. I don't have any issues to work through with death traps. That's okay. Um, so I would recommend those if you're feeling kind of in a horror franchisey kind of mood. Uh, otherwise, I recommend just going to the cinema. We have had a splurge. This has been a fantastic October uh, for releases. I I know that like people have varying opinions about these, but I think taken as a whole, there is something for everyone in the selection of like Ridley Scott's The Last Duel. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're looking Adam for, Driver on a horse. I mean, yeah, that that's the pitch right there. I think Jodie Comer is fantastic. I think Ben Affleck is like amazing in that. I think like I'm Ben Affleck's performance. I came out going, wow, Ben Affleck can be happy. I am happy for Ben <laughs> Affleck. Um, you also had obviously that that same weekend you had the release of um, damn it off the top of my head um, Venom, Let there, be Venom Let there Be Carnage yes the best studio rom-com of the past year um, probably the best it studio rom-com great. 
it, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I came yeah. out of the cinema was like, I was not expecting that. Yeah, I no, quite liked it. It's not <laughs> a classic. It's not, it's not a classic. It's not a masterpiece, but I had such fun with it. It is like, it is a rom-com through and through. In the second act, the two actors kind of split up. Venom announces that he is out of the Eddie closet, finally. Um, like, they have the whole thing. They have to come together at the end to stop a wedding in a church, interrupting at the last possible moment. <laughs> and the without spoiling anything, the post credit scene is effectively Venom telling Eddie about his ex-boyfriend, who is this young hot twink who you've probably seen other places as well and they're gonna have to work through this relationship together it is like i i really really enjoyed it and then halloween kills which is the most bleak and nihilistic halloween movie since 1978 so i was kind of on board with that more than most critics and even this weekend we also had the release of um what is it the uh the french dispatch yep which I would argue maybe Wes Anderson's weakest film since the Darjeeling Limited, but it's still a Wes Anderson film. It's still but exceedingly we're, well made. We're oh. not going to get that Timmy does electric Dylan film. It uh, doesn't look like now. So that's the closest you're going to get to see him with Bob Dylan at his prime hair. So and he's in it very briefly. So just go for that. Go for that. Stay for Jason Schwartzman, which is what he's... I'd always say. <laughs> hold on. I love, I love that you're like, go and see Timothy Chalamet. He's barely in it, but go and stay for Jason Schwartzman. Who's, who's in, also like... barely in it. <laughs> <laughs> he has two scenes of maybe a line of dialogue. Listen, all my men are in it because Bill Murray obviously is in it as well. So look, I was happy. Out. It's it. I like, it's fine. I, as I take the criticism completely because it's, it's very much the most include like an inclusive not inclusive exclusive Wes Anderson kind of film as yes. in like it is just too much for people yeah. I think it's too it's very Wes precious. Anderson films it's like, very like, precious. Like, yeah. like, I like Wes Anderson films but like when I was sitting down it was like I would like one Wes Anderson film and the movie's like no you will have five no, you'll have five thousand <laughs> yeah. and you'll like them all yeah. feels uh, like the opposite of Dune like you're getting three movies instead of half a movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, so go and see The French Dispatch and go and see Dune and they average out and then Last Night in Soho will be releasing on Friday as well actually um, so, I'm looking forward to that yeah. one a lot I have to say yeah. I mean again I yeah. big Edgar Wright fans on this and like it, it would be nice having an Edgar Wright movie that is not populated by sex offenders um, so I'm really looking forward to that happening um, I went from watching Baby Driver 13 times in one year to never watching Baby Driver again um, alright so where can we find you Jen what you up to um, talking about Timmy uh, all the time and Succession all the time on Twitter at Jen Pops with two N's and then yeah just all over the place on the radio on Today FM on RT Arena and sometimes in your papers. Perfect. And Dee, where are you at? Watch up to. Yeah, I'm usually on entertainment.ie and then I hop around a few other places on radio like Spin 1038 and Today FM and RT2FM, that kind of stuff. Um, and then, yeah, I am on Twitter at Deirdre Malumby. That's D-E-I-R-D-R-E-M-O-L-U-M-B-Y. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. We'll be back. Uh, we'll be back this Saturday. We're giving you a special episode this week because it's Halloween. The fantastic Dr. Bernie Spurphy, the wonderful Joey Kill, will be joining us for a discussion of Ridley Scott's Alien uh, this Saturday to mark Halloween. We'll then be taking a week off and we'll be coming back with a discussion of Pan's Labyrinth. But thank you so much, Dee. Thank you, Jen. Thank you for your time. It has been a huge pleasure. Goodbye, Goodbye. young human. I hope thank you live. You. <laughs> So much potential wasted <laughs> in a mail. All right. Wasted <laughs> on two mails. Wasted on two mails. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's all it's that potential. <laughs> all right, bye guys. Bye. bye.